You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 407. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 4B in Charleston, South Carolina. Today's show is recorded on the 7th of January, 2020. Today's episode, we now learn that fuel exhaustion led to the fatal emergency landing of a Ukrainian freighter, and a malfunctioning phone battery burns a passenger on an Air Asia flight. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, sounds like a drag. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, flight 407 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger, a real radio professional based in New York City. Hey, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover news in aviation and also your great feedback. And joining me today from across the pond in a studio in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. Great to be back on the show again. We're getting back into the swing of it in 2020. Uh, well, yeah, that's about all there is to say, really. Looking forward to a good show. We'll keep talking because your your theme music is still running. Oh, never mind. It's over now. And also, from the northwest Atlanta suburbs, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, Underwater photographer and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, it's Captain Dana. Hello there, guys. How are you doing tonight? It's going to be another fantastic evening or day or wherever you're listening of the APG show. Absolutely. And we will be joined soon by Dr. Steph. She's not quite here yet, but that's okay. She'll be with us soon. And... So fade your music out, Dana, and get on with the news. Stand by for news. All right, we'll start with an update on an accident that occurred in Ukraine, uh, Lviv, on October 4th, 2019. I think we kind of suspected that this was the case, but we didn't really have a lot of information on it at the time. Uh, Let us remind you about the accident. Uh, A UAA, Ukraine Air Alliance, Antonov AN-12 freighter, registration, uniform Romeo 
Charlie Alpha Hotel performing flight 4050 from Vigo, Spain to Lviv, or Lviv, Ukraine, with seven crew and one passenger and a cargo of 13 tons consisting of car parts, was on approach to Lviv about 7.4 nautical miles before the before the airport uh, when the aircraft disappeared from radar. The aircraft was subsequently found on the ground about 0.8 nautical miles before runway 31 in soil and vegetation near a soccer stadium and a cemetery where the crew had attempted an emergency landing due to running out of fuel. Five occupants were killed, three occupants were taken to hospitals with injuries. Looks like the investigatory agency um, released their preliminary report on the 20th of December in 2019. And uh, the FDR and CVR were found in satisfactory condition and have been read out. The crew did not provide any critical remarks up to intercepting the localizer for runway 31. And uh, the ATIS broadcast was information Romeo ILS approach, low visibility procedures are applied at the aerodrome, runway in use, runway 31. Runway surface condition reported for 1953, wet, clean. The measured friction coefficient, 0.55. The estimated braking efficiency on the runway surface, good. Transition flight level, 110. Warning, large flocks of birds. <laughs> I guess everywhere in the world they say this. Large flocks of birds are in the aerodrome area on the final. There is no wind. Visibility is 150 meters. That's, that's not very good, is it? 150 meters, that's what... Half a, it's not even half a mile, is it? Five hundred feet? No, yeah. I mean uh, we we weren't allowed to do uh, cat one approaches uh, less than five fifty meters. So okay. that's that's really in low visibility procedures. Okay. Um. So yeah, the uh, low visibility, bad weather, um, and uh, the NBAAI described the sequence of events during the final approach. At 340.01, the crew reported runway 31 localizer beam capture. At 340.27, the controller informed the crew of changes in the runway 31 visibility range at the touchdown point. 800 meters, it's not too bad, I guess, in the middle of the runway. 800 meters at the end of the runway, 750 meters, and vertical visibility, 60 meters. At 341.47, the crew contacted the tower controller and after a few seconds, reported that it continued ILS approach to runway 31 and set QNH of 1013 hectopascals. At 341.58, the controller informed the crew of wind nil on runway 31 and cleared landing. The crew would confirm the landing clearance. According to ground-based recorder data, at this time the aircraft speed was 316 kilometers per hour. I don't know what that is. The flight course was 310. According to the flight recorder's data, at the time of the flight on final, starting from the distance of six nautical miles to the runway threshold, no, six kilometers to the runway threshold, the aircraft descended significantly below the glide path. In particular, at a distance of 1.8 nautical miles um, from the touchdown point, the aircraft descended to the altitude of 100 meters and continued the flight almost one half as high as the glide path. At the altitude of 60 meters, an alarm sounded that the decision height had been reached to which no crew member responded. <laughs> at the distance of 1,359 meters to the runway threshold, at the altitude of 5 to 7 meters, that's awfully close to the ground. I, I know that even, even though we don't have the metric system. Uh, the aircraft collided with trees and impacted the ground. The aircraft wreckage layout is presented in Figure 1. Uh, 343.37, the aircraft onboard transponder responded for the last time. 
to the aerodrome surveillance radar. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I don't even think they said anything on the cockpit voice recorder about the fact that they were running out of fuel. Um, I don't. It doesn't seem to me that it was a surprise to anybody in the cockpit that that the airplane wasn't able to maintain the uh, the the uh, ILS glide slope. Uh, it just seems kind of odd. It doesn't sound like sound like there was a lot of conversation going on there in the in the cockpit. Well, and what I'm noticing here, Jeff, is I was taking a look at the uh, the flight crew experience, mm-hmm. very experienced flight crew on this aircraft, and very experienced total time. Mm-hmm. Um, captain was much younger than the first officer, which would indicate that you know he had a total of a sixty-seven fifty total hours in sixty-seven uh, sixty-fifth. 6,570 hours on type. So he's been on that airplane quite a long time. And then the, the first officer had 14,670 hours in 9620 on type. So, and then the navigator, you know, very experienced as well. So this, this is an experienced crew, but you know, what you're, what you're talking about here is you take a look at the photographs and you can see clearly that, um, that with no post fire, although the aircraft is pretty much intact, then the, then the props come in. Uh, off pretty much you know the wings mm-hmm. still attached the nose the nose of the aircraft is pretty well crushed but down here at the end of of, of what you're reading uh they have the ukrainian english version in their preliminary report so i don't know if you want me to read that out for you but it does uh um it was talking a little bit about the propellers whether they were turning or whether they were feathered and uh when they contacted the the trees the obstacles and and doesn't mention anything about a uh, few was in any fuel was recovered from the the wreckage so yeah uh or, and whether any fuel odor could be noticed so uh you know even if there was fuel in the aircraft uh, the wings are intact so i don't i don't see that it would lead to a conclusive uh, without them you know testing the wing tanks themselves there's no post uh, post crash fire so yeah well and in looking at those photos as you mentioned dana the the pictures of the propellers uh, are just classic um, post-investigation stuff that you learn in accident investigation school. The, these these engines were not producing power. No, they were uh, because not. Because the, you can look at the props and see that what kind of damage is on them, and and uh, they don't show the telltale signs of uh, power being produced. Yeah, and, and if you look at the whole aircraft in total, you can see that it wasn't, you know, it, it's actually consistent with the prop damage Yeah, uh, as to uh, those engines were probably not. I do remember us talking about this before when it first occurred and uh, the fact that, you know, the fuel planning must have been horrendous because uh, apparently they didn't have any reserve at all for this. I guess they were stopping here at this airport to uh, as a fuel stop. Uh, but it just looks like they uh, were kind of irresponsible when it comes to making sure that they had the appropriate fuel reserves on the on the airplane. Yeah, I mean, and we were talking about you know fuel fuel planning before, and and mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's just very important that we make sure it doesn't matter whether you're flying a Cessna one fifty two or you know an Antonov or a seven forty seven. You have to make sure that you verify the fuel you have on board is sufficient to get to your destination, fly to your alternate airport, and any contingencies beyond that as well. So, so everybody here at the APG, our advice to you: if you fly airplanes, make sure you have enough fuel. To make it to your destination. You want to add anything to that? Nick, Nick is frozen. <laughs> yes, he is. He's all right. He's so so just 
shocked by this whole thing. He just doesn't know what to say. All right. Uh, I'm back. Sorry, okay. I was losing bandwidth. I just did a yeah. quick reset. Oh, look, here's Steph. Yeah, hey, Steph. Hello. Hi, wait, Steph. wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and do this. From her beautiful home on the lake. Quickly trying to find my cheat sheet here. Okay, there we go. Uh, in the Carolinas, doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It's like you know me so well. I do. <laughs> like the back of my hand. Where did that go? Yeah, exactly. Glad to be here. Sorry <laughs> for my tardiness. And uh, yeah, after I spent the morning complaining about people being late for things, um, my turn. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Here I am. Hey, you were here actually before I thought you would be. So that's great. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And we've only started on the uh, first item. Sorry, I didn't mean to just like barge in. It seemed like maybe you were taking a little pause there. I could sneak in. Yeah, no. Um, Why did I say that? Yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah, no. Yes, no, no, yes. Uh, So do you have anything to add about um, this incident of the Ukrainian Antonov? You know, we we talked about it pretty much last time. And basically the preliminary report is basically confirming what we kind of were surmising as far as the fact that it ran out of fuel and just about made it, but not quite. Gotcha. Yep. Just about. That sounds like a good summary to me. Yeah. Okay. Update. Well, then let's move on to item B. Uh, accident. Air Asia A20N. What's an A20? Oh, it's an Airbus. A320-200. Near Ho Chi Minh City on the 25th of December, Christmas. Uh, a phone battery burns a passenger. And this is from the Aviation Herald. Simon Radke's uh, wonderful site. Uh, this A320-200 registration 9 Mike Alpha Golf Lima performing flight 130 from Kuala Lumpur to Hong Kong was en route at flight level 350 and 200 nautical miles south of Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam when a backup battery. A backup battery. I think that's important. It seems to me that most of these incidents incidents involve backup batteries, not the actual battery inside the phone. Um, anyway, backup battery for a mobile phone suffered a rapid thermal runaway causing fire that burned the owner of the phone, uh, at his left arm, left egg, left, left leg, left buttocks and the back of left thigh overall. Did about- you say his left egg? I did. <laughs> I was hoping you would <laughs> did. just leave that I, one we alone. All noticed it. I was going to let it go, but Nick, apparently, yeah, uh, I, I was surprised you managed to do that. You'd that. want the proper medical term for a Listen, left egg. Uh, you know, of all the things I've seen and heard today, that was so low on the list of surprising things. But just, but I do have my backup batteries here for, there you go. Drops. Just don't take them on an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> I take them all, all the time. Certainly not, don't keep them near your eggs. Right. Yeah, yes. I, I don't want any. Burnt you, eggs, I had made sounds. it so far past my little, you know, blooper that I thought I maybe I was going to get away it. with it. Now you don't even. Oh, <laughs> you made it. Or. You didn't. No. I can't even. I can't even edit this out anymore. Oh well. So, leave um, it. Yeah. Leave it in. There we go. So anyway, uh, this go my ego. This gentleman. So left arm, left leg, left egg, left buttocks, and the back of left thigh <laughs> uh, burned about twenty percent of his skin surface. That's a lot. Ouch. Cabin Ouch. crew extinguished the fire, cooled the battery down, secured it in a safe container, and provided first aid to the passenger while the flight crew diverted the aircraft to Ho Chi Minh City, where the aircraft landed safely about 35 minutes later. The passenger was taken to a hospital, and following treatment could be discharged the following day. Oh, so I guess they weren't too bad, huh? 
If it was a really bad burn, then I think they didn't would, say what degree of burn. That's just true. Quite a big surface area. So. That is true. And at least he had it in the cabin so that they could, you know, take care of the offend, offending battery and uh, did the right thing. Got the thing on the ground very quickly. And uh, yeah, happy ending. But uh, it's, I think that's uh, a problem with especially batteries, these backup batteries that uh, are made by manufacturers that um, I, I'm sure that Steph has backup batteries that are are uh, manufactured by um this one's a Mophie. A Mophie, that's is, a good yeah. company. Yeah, that's a good bank. This Repu- one is reputable. Elevation Lab. Okay, yeah, they're good too. Are they? Never yeah. heard of I don't them. Know. <laughs> um, yeah, I like this one though because it has a place for you to put the Apple Watch on, and then it's got this little strappy thing so you can strap it onto the. Ooh. You yeah. see a strap on to your left egg? Yes, your left to your left egg. egg. <laughs> That's where, where he had that little white yeah. area attached to his left egg. Nasty, nasty. <laughs> I, I guess uh, the phone manufacturers have to be very careful about uh, this sort of a problem. After the Samsung Galaxy, was it? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so bad that they actually banned having them on aircraft. Yeah. That could... Uh, uh, you know, be a dreadful blow for a phone manufacturer. Could lose them a lot of money and a lot of reputation. If you're just a generic battery maker, uh, you just rename your company and carry on regardless, don't you? Yeah. I ordered some tiny little lithium-ion batteries or lithium batteries of some sort for a uh, a scale in my bathroom, mm-hmm. and ordered them from Amazon. And it came in a package that said, "This may not be shipped on an aircraft." lithium batteries oh, inside okay, yeah, like yeah. on the outside of the packaging well and that's responsible yes mm-hmm. do we know that it wasn't no, transported? no idea oh. no idea okay. it did arrive like same day or next day so little man on a bicycle <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure that's how it happened <laughs> yeah no yeah no yeah no all right enough of that i was gonna say something really bad i stopped Okay. Thank you Good for your night. discipline, sir. We, we probably had enough really bad on this story. <laughs> okay. Uh, we are glad that the gentleman is, is okay. And yes, we are. Really yes, we are. Hope he learned his lesson about backup batteries. Uh, United Boeing 738, uh, 737-800 at Denver on the 22nd of December. Um, let's see. was performing flight 2429 from Newark to Denver. Landed on Denver's runway 17 right when sparks became visible from the left main gear. The crew requested emergency services to attend to the aircraft, advising they believed they had blown a tire or maybe a gear. (laughs) The aircraft became disabled on the runway, resting on the left-hand engine cowling, nose gear, and right-hand main gear. The left main Uh, gear... I'm sorry, can I stop you, Jeff? I just want to know how you blow a gear. I don't know. (laughs) It's it's called called a blown landing. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure how you blow a gear, actually. Okay. Um, That's best. Left we should, let's get that person on the phone right now. Liz, <laughs> if you can figure out who that was flying the airplane at the time, we'd like to ask him. He probably didn't say or she didn't say blown gear. I don't know. Maybe they did. Can you guys hear the uh, vacuuming, vacuuming yes. going on in the hall? It sounded like a train whistle or something. I, well, I started hearing that. I thought I turned off the air conditioning unit. I'm sure I did. And then I, it, it just keeps keeps getting louder and louder in the background. And there, um, any moment you're gonna get housekeeping, <laughs> bam, <laughs> or just hitting the door, bam, bam, bam. Anyway, um, okay. Passengers reported as soon as the aircraft touched down, sparks 
became visible on the left main gear. The, the, they later disembarked via the right-hand front door and stairs. The airline reported the aircraft experienced a mechanical issue. Yeah, duh. On landing, all passengers were bussed to the terminal. The FAA reported the gear collapsed. The gear collapsed on landing. There were no injuries. Uh, the aircraft sustained unknown damage. Uh, they towed the aircraft off the runway the following day, with the left-hand wing being supported by a flatbed semi-truck. That's interesting. Um, anyway, so the weather at the time was not bad for Denver, especially that time of year. Uh, winds uh, out of the south at about 8 knots. Good visibility. 22,000 broken, so you know it wasn't bad weather at all. Nor high winds or anything else. So Sometimes that happens, you know. You get some kind of a fatigue crack or a stress crack or something and it just well, uh, collapses uh, amongst the comments that follow the text uh, some mm -hmm. one has said engineer was correct it was a trunnion pin failure confirmed oh. with my own eyes oh. so perhaps uh, someone who works there took a look interesting okay well there you have it make sure you check those trunnion pins very well. Part of your Absolutely. Yeah, especially yeah. in the walk around FOs, take note of that, please. Yes. Yep. Okay. Moving on. Item D. Uh, this is a tweet uh, from Turkish Air News. And uh, Turkish Airlines Airbus A330 343, registration Tango Charlie Lima Oscar Lima, was performing flight 627 from Istanbul to Port. Harcourt, and that's in uh, North Africa, is it not? Yeah, that's uh, that's Nigeria. Uh, we used okay. to have a service there. Uh, it was a captain's only landing. I point out. Yeah, I kind of remember you said that it was kind of a difficult place to uh, to yeah, land. Yeah, well, doesn't have the best of facilities. There. Okay. When the pilot in command landed the aircraft next to the runway, due to confusion of the runway lights. The runway lights were confused. I think so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they They're didn't know a bad hair day. Okay, so where shall I be tonight? <laughs> so uh, I guess, and uh, the thing that's really bad about this one is that, well, I mean, it's bad all around. But uh, Tango Charlie Lima Alpha Lima LOL <laughs> um, Oscar Lima. <laughs> uh, was just introduced into service three days ago when this tweet was put Ouch. out. It was a brand new airplane. <laughs> Yeah, and, you got to uh, break it in somehow. Try yeah. not to break it. Well, we had uh, a restriction. Not only was it captain's only landing, it was daytime only landing. So mm -hmm. this guy landed at night, presumably. So, uh, did they have like non non standard lighting or something? Or no, not so much as Candles. having uh, an unreliable power supply with no decent backup. So it was quite likely on occasions that the entire airport used to get blacked out. Oh, nice. That's hmm. what you want. No. Yeah, I mean, this was some years ago. Whether it's still that case now, I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's that was the restrictions placed on us. Well, the uh, there are some pictures in this tweet of um, the uh, shredded uh, main landing gear tires on one side. Um, I thought I read somewhere else that uh, the the pilots or the captain mistook the set or the uh, the side lighting. What do they call that again? The edge lighting. Uh, for the center line lighting. Maybe they don't have mm -hmm. center line lighting. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so half the airplane was on the runway and half of it was off, I think. Not good. Yeah, we had a guy drift off the side of the runway uh, when he lost sight of the 
lights or the uh, the runway uh, during a landing right at dawn. Uh, and he went through into a layer of fog, which he had been able to perceive before. And basically the runway disappeared in the flare. And he went around, but uh, because he couldn't see the ground anymore, uh, he wasn't able to maintain direct, perfect directional control. And he his main gear ran off the left side of the runway. So, uh, you know, it's, it wasn't the easiest place to operate from. The weather conditions were obviously quite deceiving at times. It sounds like one of those places I don't want to fly into. Ever. I'm sure there are some nasty places in the States, but this was mm-hmm. somewhere where you had to be really on your metal. Not that bad, Nick. That's why I choose domestic <laughs> flying. Thank you. I mean, we're mostly civilized here. Well, we mostly. took three forties into there all the time. So. Now, I have to say, there was an instance at Acme Airlines a few years back uh, going into, I believe it was Dayton uh, on the, uh, the northernmost runway. And, uh, I, I guess at the time, or uh, again, I think I've said this before, I get Dayton and Columbus airports, not Somewhere the city uh, confused because uh, they're very kind of in my mind, they're kind of similar layouts. Uh, but the, um, the, the left, uh, coming in landing to the, uh, to the East, the left runway on w- at one of those airports did not have center line lighting. And I guess it was one of those days where the weather wasn't optimum. And when they broke out, the crew thought that the lights they were looking at were the center line lights, but mm-hmm. there are no center at that time. I don't know if there are now at that time, there were no center line lights on that runway. And so half the, the, I think it was a right main landing gear was off of the runway and the left main was on the runway. And they, I guess it was so the terrain was so, smooth and even that they really didn't notice until we're taxing into the gate. Well, taxing into the gate and the, the mechanics or the, the ground personnel were looking at it going like, why is there like mud, like dropping, <laughs> you know, off-roading in this thing. Yeah. Just it was, they went out there and looked and went, oops, oopsie. So it happens. That's why it's important when you're reviewing, especially in low visibility or uh, kind of crappy weather, uh, review those lighting systems to, kind of really understand what you're going to be looking for. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, good point. Uh, thanks. Um, item E air Canada triple seven uh, was being towed at uh, Toronto Pearson, I believe. Right. Yes. Uh, okay. Thank you. Um, and um, sure. yeah, there it is in Toronto. Um, Let's see. Here's the the tweet from Breaking Aviation News. Uh, 27 December shows an Air Canada 777-300 clipping the tail of a parked Air Canada A321 in Toronto. Both aircraft were not carrying passengers at the time of the incident. And there is a video associated with this, and it's uh, interesting to see. You just kind of start cringing. like just a second. It just spins that 320 around <laughs> through about 60 degrees. That, that was an A321, yeah. so it's not like a super small airplane. That no, uh, was, it looked like a little toy. Like yeah. Yeah. So not good. But uh, I, the good thing is it didn't involve any pilots. <laughs> it was just ground personnel. <laughs> yeah. Not that. Well, yeah. it's good for us pilots, no, I guess. All, no all the pilots in jo- involved still have their jobs. Yes, exactly. No pilots' egos were bruised. That's right. That's true. Incident. So, uh, hmm. check it out. It'll be in the show notes. It'll be uh, d- definitely a worthwhile uh, video to watch uh, if you haven't already seen it. Did uh, you read the update about it? 
Okay, no. The, uh, Why don't you? At the bottom. Um, so the triple seven that struck the tail of the A321 is going to uh, Singapore via Tokyo for a pre-planned sea check. So good oh. timing. Did you read yeah. that? Already? Very good timing. Yeah. I guess they could repair it enough that they can fly it all the way over there to have that sure. done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sea the check is a quite an extensive check, isn't it? Yeah, it takes some weeks. So, uh, yeah, they, they basically take it apart, put it back together again. Yeah. All right. Uh, item F. This is from Reuters.com. The number of people killed in large commercial airline or airplane crashes fell by more than 50% in 2019, despite a high-profile Boeing 737 MAX crash in Ethiopia in March, a Dutch consulting firm said on Wednesday. Aviation consulting firm TO70 said there were 86 accidents involving large commercial planes, including eight fatal incidents, resulting in 257 fatalities last year. In 2018, there were 160 accidents, including 13 fatal ones, resulting in 534 deaths. Uh, TO70 said the fatal accident rate for large airplanes and commercial passenger air transport was just 0.18 fatal accident per million flights in 2019, or an average one fatal accident every 5.58 million flights. A significant improvement over 2018. Hey, so those of you out there who are have some fear of flying, um, so you can go out and fly on 5.58 million flights before you might get killed. Not bad odds. No, it's not bad odds at all. I don't think I could afford to that many flights. Yeah, I don't know if we all, any of us have enough time to take that many flights. Not even me. Not even Steph. <laughs> That's saying something. <laughs> <laughs> right, but she's getting close. I'm working she's on it. Close. I should probably slow down a little bit then. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get too close to that 5.58 yeah, million no, number. No. Uh, let's see. <laughs> um, anything else worth talking about in this article? So no, no I'm, I'm pleased. It's uh, yeah. such a good uh, being a good such a year. Good. Shall I say that in English? I don't. I'd, <laughs> what, what such language is year? <laughs> and uh, I'm surprised no one's taken uh, full responsibility for such a successful aviation uh, accident record. Now, what was it? The year before 2017, when there were zero fatal. Well, that's right. There was a year accidents. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean it was re- relatively recent. Mm-hmm. Is it zero in the? St- States or zero worldwide. I think it was commercial for commercial worldwide flights. Worldwide, worldwide. commercial flights. Yeah. Okay. So like part one twenty one type flights. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on. Oh, the the Chinese like to do their lucky charm thing with <laughs> taking a whole handful of coins and throwing them into the intake of an engine. Um, this is from Apple News. Uh, probably the actual source is probably somebody else. A Chinese man who was flying for the first time has been fined for throwing good luck coins into a plane's engine. The 28-year-old, you know, you'd think a younger person would kind of understand. I mean, I can understand the old people that maybe had never been around modern things like jet airplanes, but 28 years old. How long have jet airplanes been around for now, though? Um, They'd have to be pretty old. Yeah, really old, right? It was in the uh, 50s, I guess, when we first started seeing the uh, jet airliner age. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, Atlantis. Yeah, yeah, you're right. They'd have Late to be very 40s, old. So even people who are a hundred years old have had. Okay, so age has 30, nothing to do with it. Seventy years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, the 28 year old was ordered to pay seventeen thousand two hundred dollars. Uh, that's thirteen thousand one hundred uh, pounds in compensation to the budget airline called Lucky Air. <laughs> Yeah, you think with a name like that, they wouldn't need <laughs> no. any extra luck. Come on. It's lucky We're trying air. to inspire confidence with the name of our airline. Yeah. Uh, the plane yeah, was... We're, I'd rather be lucky than good. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, the plane was grounded after the coins were found near one of its engines. Uh, Lu Chao admitted throwing the coins as he boarded an internal flight at... I'm not going to even try that one. Uh, an airport in eastern China in February of last year. He appeared in court in July, but the ruling was only recently made public. Uh, the flight was canceled after staff spotted two one yuan coins. Yuan. yuan. Uh, he's a bit of a cheapskate because if he was trying to be serious about it, he'd have chucked something more <laughs> expensive <laughs> than a one yuan coin. <laughs> well, I, which is probably around a cent or less. So I'm thinking that. Maybe he's not superstitious, but just a little stitious. <laughs> That's from the office. Michael Scott. Okay. Very good. Yeah, Very good. Uh, safety checks were carried out, leaving passengers. Sadly, he's here all week. Yeah, I'll be here <laughs> for a long time, least, I hope. At least for the next couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, we have some breaking news. What's going on here? Um, this is from Neville Bounds. Oh Liz God. is breaking in. or, or wait, Do we have our breaking news uh, sound sounder? Um, no, we don't. Potable. Nope, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they might need some of that water to put out this fire. Yes. I'm glad I made you laugh. It was, <laughs> that was one semi-appropriate. Of her, that's one of her good laughs. Okay, well, I'll put it in in post. <laughs> uh, breaking news. Alert. Stavanger Airport is closed due to a huge fire. Stavanger. Oh, thank you. Stavanger. Where is that? Uh, Stavanger. Like uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, I'm going to say Norway, but I'll look, I'll look it up. Okay. I'm um, closed due to a huge fire in the airport's parking garage. Hmm. Norway. Thank you. Liz has confirmed it is Norway. Um, I'm wondering what has caused the fire. I'm hoping it's just a, a car, uh, sorry, an, auto some sort of battery in a car, yeah, or auto flam, <laughs> an auto flambe, Tesla, probably a Tesla. A Tesla. Oh, sorry, Mister Tesla, I didn't mean to say that. Like, other electric cars have been known to catch fire. A, a barbecue, yes, a barbecue <laughs> or an auto flambe. I've um, never heard of that one, Steph. No, that's that's, good. I like that. So, um, yeah, hopefully it's not an airplane that crashed into that side of this parking garage. Anyway, well, I'm sure that our our news um, news staff will news staff. Keep us advised. Thank you. Appreciate that. Okay. Uh, back to the lucky air and the lucky coins. Well, I don't think we have anything else to say about that, do we? Don't do it. Stupid. All right. Uh, H. This is a good one. Wait a minute. I have, I have one more thing to say. Yes. The incident cost the airline $17,600, but they only fined the guy $17,200. Like $400 short there. Wow. Anyway, he was a gold card carrier. <laughs> I guess. Get <Good> status. <laughs> yeah. Get no, a little break. Time flying. Yeah. No. Okay. Um, Adam H. This is a good one. Has everybody here seen the video? That's pretty yes, interesting. Yes, I have. Um, so somebody was taking a video of uh, while the airplane was taking off. This was a Air Canada Jazz um, 
what was it? Uh, um, 400 uh, DH C eight What do we call them? The, um, dash four hundred dash eight. What, what, what do we call the four hundred? We, we we call it just a four hundred, right? I don't know what the heck we call it. It's the dash eight. Yeah, um, they were taking off and in Montreal, and a passenger thankfully was taking video uh, of the landing gear. The uh, uh, looked like the left side landing gear in uh, inboard tire and wheel assembly were throwing out some sparks and then as the airplane lifts off <laughs> that inboard left main wheel comes off pretty neat. <laughs> just kind of like unceremoniously just bloop. just drops off yeah. then that's enough yep i've had enough yeah and not making this trip. yeah and they uh return to montreal safely um and uh you know the, the airplane can on one tire can uh you know, land without a problem. Uh, it's just that you want to have two, uh, mainly because of uh, a situation like this. <laughs> you, if you lose one, at least you still have one. But I think, um, as you know, for day in and day out use, several flights a day, you know, obviously it's designed to have more than one wheel on that left side landing gear. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know what happened there. They didn't really give a lot of detail why why that happened. It looks like something must have been uh, some kind of friction well, like in there. The big nut at the end uh, failed, and it just wore itself off. Um, Are you talking to me about me off. again? Big nut at the end. Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Hats off to the handling pilot. It was one of the nicest landings it I've was. ever seen. Boy, was that smooth! So grease. Good job. Because uh, I think you know when you're doing that sort of thing, you know you've got to do a smooth landing. Uh, sometimes that's the worst situation to be in, you know, but, uh, he did a cracking job. Yeah. When you think, you know, if you, if you come in and you prang it on, you know, what are the chance, you know, there's a chance that that other wheel is not going to be able to support all you that. Like that, uh, seven, thirty oh, seven, in Denver. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, so good job crew. You're right. Yeah. Nick, very nice beautiful. Yeah. Uh, check out that video. A couple of different videos you want to watch on. Yeah. It's, there's, there's a full length one which shows the beginning and the landing. And that landing mm -hmm. is just like, you know, mm -hmm. greased weasel. Yeah. Whatever. I can't say. <laughs> greased weasel poop. <laughs> you know, I Nick don't think I've ever. struggling with English tonight. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a, a greased weasel, actually. I don't even know if I've seen a weasel, but, you know, in real life, I don't know. Um, no. Are they cute? If you'd seen one, you'd know about it. <laughs> yeah okay no idea <laughs> um i uh a i i i a um an airline named delta um with 107 passengers on board it's, never heard of them sound like no. some fly-by-night outfit <laughs> i think they are slides off the runway at a wisconsin airport um and this wisconsin airport in question green bay i was green just there bay. do you recognize that stuff but no that could <laughs> yeah. be Literally anywhere, but yeah. there's some snow. They and do all seems... the packing in Green Bay. They do. Yes. They pack a yeah. lot of meat. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cheese. That's what she said. Oh, I thought oh, it cheese? was Amazon. Sorry. Oh, I don't know. They pack what? <laughs> is that? Is that what? I thought the packers were uh, meat packers. That's how they got their yeah, name. Yeah, probably. Oh, okay. Oh, I assumed it was Amazon. I, no I don't know. They all uh, these days they all wear big cheese wedges on their heads. So. Yeah, I think that has more to do with the fact that Wisconsin is a state that makes a lot of cheese, a lot of dairy products. Oh, anyway, um, now we're going to get we're going to get people sending us feedback explaining oh, yeah. 
what the Packers the, uh, stand for and why she's a Bears fan. I don't, I don't care. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so, yeah. To be on record, Steph doesn't care. Doesn't. I don't care. <clears throat> don't send. Not, not, not of importance. You have a very nice football stadium, though. Yes. Kind of cold, but uh, otherwise very nice. Anyway, um, a Delta Airlines plane slid off a taxiway amid uh, icy conditions Saturday morning in Green Bay. Um, the flight 1770, 1770 was headed for Atlanta when it left the taxiway around 6.15 a.m. No injuries were reported, nor was there any damage to the plane. Conditions were icy at the time of the incident. Mm-hmm. I uh, wasn't sure what caused the plane to slide off the runway. Um, the airport staff were aware of the icy conditions and treated the taxiway with sand and alerted pilots of the icy and slippery conditions. Um, so uh, not sure exactly if, if the pilot was taxiing too quickly or if it just was so much ice that there was nothing he could do to keep the airplane from sliding off. I don't know. You know, I at all about do you have any friends that work for this airline, Dana, that might know something about this? Uh, I do, but I uh, wasn't the person I know that flies that aircraft, so yeah. um, don't have any further information on it, unfortunately. Okay. Appears to be an angry puppy. A very yeah, angry puppy, if you look at the picture. <laughs> you know, as and I was explaining to my uh, my in-laws when they were here, um, you know, they, they said, well, how can that happen? Well, you drive in the Northeast, if it's icy outside, can your car depart the uh, you know, prepared pavement and end up in the grass? They said, yeah. I said, well, what makes you, what makes you think an airplane's any different? Yeah. You know, certainly, you know, there are certain factors involved, uh, you know, were both engines running, were they taxiing fast, were, you know, they, you know, how icy was it, they, you know, how fast are they going and try to make a turn, blah, blah, blah. So, mm-hmm. you know, we can always Monday morning quarterback, but you know, ultimately, we don't know what the conditions actually were. And in general, in these cases, um, I think the advice, uh, good advice, uh, regardless of how heavy or light the airplane is, have both engines running. You have uh, the thrust reversers at your disposal, if necessary, to help control the uh, the airplane's um, forward and rearward, rearward motion. And also side to side motion. So, uh, you know, if the if the wheels are not, you know, getting enough grip on the runway surface, you can always use those engine thrust reversers to kind of help out. So uh, that's why we are. They usually recommend that we in these kind of conditions that you keep both engines running. You know, it's funny that we're talking about this. You know, you mentioned thrust reversers on the, the angry puppy. Wasn't until uh, about two weeks ago when I was out there and I saw an angry puppy land. I actually paid attention that it was <laughs> buckets that came off the end of that. It is, it is confirmed now. They are buckets. It is confirmed. <laughs> but I just had to throw that in there because that, that made me think of that. Yeah. Apparently, we're, we were just all oblivious before that. So. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. 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 I digress. Oh no problem. Yeah. It's a good, uh, a good. Our apologies point. to the angry puppy. Yes, yeah, sorry, angry puppy. All right, uh, Jay. New Zealand paraglider achieves a record 197 kilometer 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 uh, flight across the South Island. Uh, Lewis Tapper. This is from Zealand, NZ. Um, Lewis Tapper completed an eight-hour flight through the South Island, securing him the national record at 197 kilometer miles traveled national paragliding champion. Why am I reading this again? (laughs) It's because it's there twice. Uh, he said he was delighted, but he could have gone further 
After completing the eight-hour run on December 23rd, his triangular route took him over the head of Lake Wakatipu. Wakatipu? Yes. Yes. I don't know. The Rockburn Valley, past Mount Ernslaw, and Mount Aspiring, and uh, almost to the head of Lake Wanaka. The 200-kilometer distance Mark had been a goal of his for a while, but he decided to save it for another run. I could have got there this time around if I'd flown for an extra five minutes or so, Tapper said. Then why didn't he? That's my question. Um, I tried to go an extra ridge on a run last year and ended up having to walk for five. Oh, this is why. (laughs) I I tried to go an extra ridge on a run last year and ended up having to walk for five hours with 25 kilograms on my back. I had 30 kilograms on me this time round and just thought I won't get too greedy. I don't know. What is that? And that's about 50 or 60 pounds. pounds. Was it? Oh, 70 pounds. 70 pounds? pounds. 12 pounds. Yeah. That's kind of heavy. It is heavy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. I was thinking, man, uh, I know that's Steph's about, like, quite, having Steph on your that much? Steph's, you know, quite an athlete. And, and all your stuff. Yeah. But I don't I'm know. Thinking, we have to do hill runs with people on our backs. That's fine. That's oh, okay. So what, wow. the, uh, so Lewis, if you're listening, uh, Steph thinks you're a wimp. <laughs> all right. Um, so uh, his flights were. As much about progression and, and improvement, he said. I'm just not motivated. I'm not just motivated by the numbers. Okay. Anyway, uh, very good. Um, sounds like that was a, as they say, a record. And his top average speed or his average speed was 24 kilometers per hour during the flight. Reached an altitude of almost 3,000 meters. What was that, about 10,000 feet? Yeah. 24 kilometers an hour. Got what slow. is that? That, very That's slow. But very it's a, slow. But it's a paraglider. 3, <laughs> but 3,000 yeah. meters is 10,000 feet, so that's yeah, pretty 10, high. Yeah, 10,000 feet. Probably so that he could clear the mountains. Oh, yeah, but it does get a bit hilly in places. Yeah. Um, anyway, he lives in Queenstown, has been national paragliding champion since 2018, and competes in Europe for several months during the northern sum- summers. Very cool. All right. Congratulations, Lewis Tapper. And, well, here's an interesting one. So this is from One Mile at a Time blog, onemileatatime.com. He starts off by saying, this is by Ben. You'd think we'd seen enough 737s grounded with the whole Max situation, though this week three of Bahamas Air's four 737s were banned from operating their standard routes to U.S. airports. Yes, their fleet consists of one 737-700, three 737-500s, three ATR-42s, and two ATR-72s. And uh, let's see, historically, Bahamas Air's 737s have operated most of their U.S. flights, including to Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and Orlando, which are destinations to which they have multiple daily flights. However, the three 737-500s are no longer allowed to fly to the airports they serve. Why? Because back in 2010... So about 10 years ago, the U.S. FAA set a deadline of January 1st, 2020 for planes to be ADS-B compliant and Bahamas Air 737-500s don't have that technology. Uh, The chairman of the airline, Tommy Turnquest, claims that the company signed a contract in June of last year for a supplier to deliver the three kits in September, October, and November of 2019. These kits cost $200,000 each, and the company had made a $200,000 down payment toward 
that's 600,000 total. He claims that the supplier reneged on their responsibilities and won't be able to install these kits before March of this year. Um, So uh, let's see, here's a quote. The supplier indicated they are unable to provide the kits before March 2020. That's not acceptable to us. Every effort will be made to recoup the money already paid. The first came up in 2010, but very few aircraft took advantage because within 10 years, you're not sure what your fleet would be. In 2018, efforts began to outfit these uh, efforts began to outfit these various aircraft. When Bahamas Air purchased five ATRs back in 2016, navigational kits were not put in place but were accessed over the past two years. The company is now looking at a deal with a new supplier, which says that they provide they could provide the kits within three weeks at the cost of 195,000 per plane. So, as everybody knows, uh, and they just mentioned in the story, the uh, uh, in the U.S., all aircraft, not well, most aircraft are required to have ADS-B. Do you, uh, Dana uh, or Steph, uh, recall exactly what airplanes aren't required to have ADS-B? Or I guess ones that don't have electrical systems. That would be yeah, one category. Yeah, and uh, in most controlled airspace, you're required to have it. Okay. So... Probably some or very few exceptions. Right, yeah. It's been so long since I've flown a plane that didn't have ADS-B out. I don't remember anymore. Right. Even even the mad dogs that Dana and I fly have ADS-B. Yes. And by the way, because of the fact that on the mad dog, well, and the 90, to have ADS-B, you have to have GPS installed. And so the entire mad dog fleet, all the 88s and the 90s that we're flying presently are GPS equipped. So we're no longer in the dark ages. All right. So here you go. So class A, all aircraft need to have it. Class B, generally surface to 10,000 feet. Class C, surface to 4,000 feet. So um, yeah, if you're going to be in any controlled airspace, you need to have ADS-B. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, and and it, under the mode, under the mode C veil as well. Okay. So that's under, like underneath the. Uh, airspace within a 30 nautical mile radius of. Big, big airports. Airports, yeah. yeah. Okay, and just a reminder uh, to those of you who don't know what ADSB stands for, it's Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast. It's a technology that determines a plane's position via satellite navigation, and it periodically broadcasts it so that it can be tracked. And that's all part of the new gen or next gen system of the uh, national airspace system here in the United States. So... The, the thing I thought was kind of funny about this was that they kind of waited. I mean, I, I, they kind of hinted that they didn't want to do it 10 years ago because they weren't sure they'd be flying these 737-500s. That, that's reasonable, I think. But I think they kind of waited a little bit too long to uh, have these installed. Well, this is one of those things where the longer you waited, the longer the wait time became to actually get it installed because so be, so many aircraft needed to have it done. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with their logic at the onset because that's a lot of Right. cash but if you're gonna if it looks like you're gonna have those aircraft in that time frame you probably should just go ahead and do it yeah it's island time man island time yeah it's so what's the hurry man right just let them know we need to install it in october for january 1st and it's island time maybe we'll get it done yeah maybe yeah. maybe not i mean I can, I can see the point on on uh you know waiting to see if the aircraft is still gonna be flying because that's seven three seven five hundred is a pretty old aircraft yeah um, but you know, waiting that long, and then you know they put themselves in their their own bind. Yeah, really so did. I guess the point is like, 
do we really feel that sorry for Bahamas Air? Uh, no, not really. No. Okay. Although they didn't just to have a did have a catastrophic hurricane go through the islands this past year. That is true. But I'm not giving them an excuse on that either. Okay. There you go. All right. And uh, finally, uh, item Lima L. The This is breaking news from Chris Cheatwood. Uh, he sent this a few days ago. The FAA has confirmed reviewing a potentially ca- catastrophic wiring issue that could cause a short circuit on the Boeing 737. Come on. Help me out. Max, thank you. You guys oh, don't play well. I had, to, I had to unmute my microphone. Oh, okay. and I was having trouble every time I hit the button. It would like unmute and remute it. I was like, oh. I'm thinking, really, you're going to leave me hanging like that, huh? Sorry. Okay. We uh, don't want to try it too. But <laughs> didn't want to help me. They want to help. Yeah. Boeing spokesman Gordon Jondro said Sunday the U.S. plane maker identified this issue as a part of the rigorous process, and we are working with the FAA to perform the appropriate analysis. And uh, I want to say what he really said, but I can't. It's a family show. Um, here we go. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. Um, the New York Times reported Boeing is reviewing whether two bundles of wiring are too close together, which could lead to a short circuit and potentially result in a crash if pilots did not respond appropriately. The FAA said in a statement Sunday, the agency and company are analyzing certain findings from a recent review of the proposed modifications to the Boeing 737 MAX. The agency added, it will ensure that all safety-related issues identified during this process are addressed. Otherwise, we're hosed. (laughs) I added that part. Uh, Boeing is currently working to design separating the wiring bundles if necessary and conducting extensive analysis to establish that the electrical fault could occur in a real-world scenario. Officials said the FAA had directed Boeing to complete an audit in December. The wiring issue could push the ba- push back the return of the MAX. Oh, wow. The FAA flagged the wiring issue as potentially catastrophic. It is possible other protections like shielding, insulation, and circuit breakers could prevent the short circuit, company officials said. So if it, if it isn't one thing, it's another. I mean, man, talking about a string of bad, <laughs> bad uh, luck for yeah, the 737 Yeah, the trouble Max. is that the airplane and the company are under the microscope right yes, now. Yes, they are. And uh, the slightest thing that's going to worry the FAA, they're going to flag up. So, yeah. yeah. Not a good place to be. Nope. No, but I guess this is the time to address all of those things. You know, yep. it's an opportunity. Absolutely. All right. That's it with the uh, new segment of the show. And that means it's time to get to know the APG show crew. And let's see who wants to start off this week. Everybody's just wistfully. How about you, Jeff? Yeah, you never start. Okay. Yeah, I will do that then. Uh, let's see, what have I been up to since the last show? Well, I ended up flying a trip on, what day did we record the last time? Last I week. have no idea. <laughs> Wait, let me look <laughs> time is the, irrelevant. Let me look Holidays at the calendar. A blur. Yeah. Um, um, I, you know what? I have no idea. Someone help us out. It was earlier Someone in the, the week. Uh, was it Monday? It was, it was last Tuesday. It was Monday last, or Tuesday? It was Monday. It was Monday. Monday. The day before yeah, New Year's Eve. Yeah, because it wasn't New Year's Eve. Okay. So. So I have been doing some stuff then. Um, New Year's Eve, uh, my youngest daughter's birthday, Natalie, she turned 23. I uh, was home for that. 
Unfortunately, she wasn't. <laughs> no, where she was. She went out with uh, her friends. Yeah, she's an adult. What can you do? Um, but uh, New Year's Day and that morning, uh, I left for a four-day trip. I picked up to kind of make up for some time that I uh, lost by dropping a trip next week, which I'll talk about here in a second. Uh, but uh, so it was a, a decent trip. Uh, Savannah, New Orleans, Philadelphia. The weather was not great here for that. A lot of rain in a lot of different places. But I, I was able to Texas and Lashock. Uh, you'll be happy to know that I actually made it to New Orleans and uh, we parked at the new uh, terminal over there and it's very, very nice. Um, so, um, you know, we, we received some feedback from Texas and Lashock regarding the exterior and interior of the, uh, the new airport terminal. And it's very, very, very nice. Um, what else can I say? Uh, yeah, it was a good trip, long trip, four days, but uh, made it home on Saturday in time to uh, do some of my singing in the three different choirs I sing in at my church. And uh, then after that, back out on this trip. Left on Monday morning. It's a three-day trip. And uh, yesterday, Monday, the first day, uh, ended up in Baltimore, Maryland. And we uh, went from there to Annapolis. But uh, when I was at the airport, I got to meet up with um, Captain Cool, Captain Will Cool. Uh, who was ending his trip at DCA, and he lives in the Baltimore area, not very far at all from the Baltimore-Washington International Airport. So he, on the way home, stopped by uh, and uh, met up with uh, myself and Hillel. Hillel was there to fly to uh, Albany, New York, and uh, we went up to the observation area in the airport, and uh, uh, we got to chat. And also there was Captain Craig and his wife, Ashley. And so the one, two, three, four, five of us um, got to chat for a while. And then uh, uh, Captain Cool went and left for his home. He said he had a very important uh, package that he had to attend to. And that is his uh, congratulations, uh, Will. He uh, had a baby boy not too long ago at all. Aww. And um, so a little bit premature, but he's doing fine. And uh, beautiful, beautiful youngster. We got to see some pictures of that. So, uh, Susie and Will, congratulations. His name is Josh. And uh, so, it was nice seeing you, uh, Will. And great seeing you as well, um, Hillel. And so, Hillel went on to his gate and Will left. And then uh, Craig and Ashley and I uh, were transported, or Craig and Ashley transported me over to Annapolis to our hotel there. And uh, by the way, Dana, that's the first time I've been to that actual location. The other two times I've been to Annapolis, we were, uh, kind of in a, like a shopping area, like a mall area, lots, lots of other buildings and that kind of thing. This place is kind of between there and the old downtown or like the near the, um, uh, the Academy and uh, whatever I that think area about is called. Six months ago, we moved from, I think it was a double tree yeah. over by the mall area right, right. to the, there's two now that, uh, are, they use in Annapolis, uh, that are more downtown. Yeah. This one was the Hilton Garden Inn, and it was very nice. Great, great location. So um, they dropped me off, went up to the room, checked in, and changed very quickly, and then uh, went from there over to the boatyard uh, bar and grill and had some amazingly good seafood. And uh, we were able to record some audio. I forgot. I packed up my 
H5 uh, audio recorder and the ATR2100 microphone. I was all set, put it in my backpack, took all the stuff out of the backpack that I didn't really need to have. And then I left the backpack on my bed and went downstairs and got into the car and went over to the boatyard grill without my recording equipment. So I used my trusty iPhone to do a recording. Uh, once we uh, were finished with our meal and went outside because it was kind of noisy inside. And uh, let's take a listen. Well, hey, we're at the boat yard bar and grill in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, we're having a meet up here and uh, I'm just going to pass my phone around. I'm sorry for the lack of high quality audio equipment that I left in my hotel room. Uh, but we're gonna we're gonna do this anyway, and let, let's start with everybody knows. Well, used to be first officer Craig. It's Captain Craig. Here he is. Hey, PGers, Captain Craig here. I uh, just had a great night with uh, great uh, alcoholic beverages. Some IPAs going around. Some great seafood since we are in uh, a good uh, spot for it here in Annapolis and. Uh, the best of all the great camaraderie of other aviators and uh just enjoying the time and the conversation it's been a great night and showing jeff some uh good uh middle mid-atlantic uh seafood and uh hospitality good all, stuff man. yeah good stuff <laughs> sorry it's uh lots of words right now it's just been overwhelming so good time and passing it along to my wife ashley Hello. <laughs> I don't know what else to say, but hi. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> hi, it's Christine. Okay, I'm a local here, and I've been listening to ABG for a little bit, and I'm trying to just get that private pilot. But this is a lot of fun tonight, talking aviation. Yeah. Yay. good food. And, oh, they had my lobster roll. So if you need a lobster roll, come to the boat yard in Naples. Hey, this is Tuba Tony from Arlington, Virginia. It's a second meetup, and I've been a listener since uh, episode 193. It was really great to finally meet Jeff and have some beers and talk some aviation. Hey, PG fam, Marks, or what is this new nickname? Uh, jerk. Something Jerk? Oh, the, the Master Jerk. jerk. Master yeah. Jerk, okay. I'm now known as Master Jerk. Uh, second meetup. Uh, last time was, where were we? Annapolis again? Also With Annapolis. Dana? With Dana. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, again... Good food, good times, with good people. So, looking forward to another one. Hey, this is APG's resident dick. Though I'm not sure if I'm actually allowed to say that anymore. Apparently, we got a complaint last time. I've been to a few of these, and they're always a good time. So, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what you all are listening to us anymore for. Go out somewhere and get a drink. <laughs> and the reason why I call Mark's master jerk is because he makes the best homemade beef jerky I've ever had in my life. First uh, sample of it was at Oshkosh, and tonight he gifted me with just a, a huge, what did you start off with, three pounds? Three-pound three roast. Three-pound roast. Roughly a pound of jerky. About a pound of jerky, and uh, I think I've eaten about half a pound already of it. It's so good. You've handed out a lot of stuff. Yeah, I did. It's a, but I'm, I'm not going to give out anymore. This is all, the rest of it is mine. So thank you very much, Marks, yeah, and, and all of you. Thank you for... Uh, for, for coming together and that's as as I say over and over and again it's uh, the best part of doing this show is the community and uh, so the show is just an excuse so signing off from Annapolis Maryland right, and that you, was my bag <laughs>
Where is my bag? Mm, I, I don't know. I've had that stuff, and uh, it's I, being it's consumed. Brilliant, and I want Should some I bring more. some with me? Would that would that be something I can oh, bring into the country? Yeah, just don't tell anybody. Okay. Yeah. Don't don't wait, we all bag. know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, but hopefully uh, the agriculture, fisheries, and food won't uh, have listening to our show. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Well, maybe I shouldn't have said anything. Mm. That's all right. You're, you're Pretty good. sure it'll all be consumed yes. tonight. Might be, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, uh, wonderful uh, beef jerky. They brought some. Uh, Mark's had made some. Or, and what, and maybe um, was it um, Rob that made it as well for the uh, Oshkosh? No, I think it was Max. Mark's? Okay. Yeah, he's the, mm-hmm. uh, he's the master jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is a package. I think everybody on the crew... Received this from Robert Fairbairn, otherwise known as Dick. And uh, so I'm going to go ahead and open it while we're doing the show. Oh, uh, Hamish, yes. Uh, By the way, if you're watching the video, that's uh, the picture that we uh, that was taken taken of us at the uh, table in the boatyard bar and grill. And so uh, we had uh, Christine, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Christine. I'm sorry, Christine, I don't remember your last name. Uh, who you've heard in that uh, audio and then uh, Craig and Ashley and myself and Tuba Tony sitting next to me on my left and uh, Robert and Marks. Christine, keep us updated on your uh, private pilot journey, please. Yes, please do. Glad she was able to make it. Okay. So we have this little uh, golfing tool and it says McDonnell Douglas and it has a uh, F-15 on one side and McDonnell Douglas printed on the other, trying to get it out of this plastic. What is this thing called? A divot tool or something like that? Yeah. Divot, divot divot repair. Repair. Repairs the Do you the want to uh, enlarge your screen a bit? Cause oh, yeah. Let me do that. Like the size of uh, a thumbnail. Okay. Let me remove that. And I can do this and then hold this up to... Oh. There we go. Start. Now you can see it if you're watching the video. Oh, that brings back Mary. Lovely McDonnell Douglas. And your favorite airplane, uh, Captain Nick. Um, when did you fly this no. one? The F-15? Uh, that's an F-18, isn't it? No, it's an F. It's an, uh, I think you said it was an F-15. Oh, is it? It looks a yeah. bit, I mean, it's a bit hard to tell. Yeah, but, uh, it's not a, a super accurate uh, version. You think it could serve as both? Because then I could sort of use it. Not that I play golf anymore. Okay, well, let's just call it an F-18 then. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so thank you, Rob, for that. Um, What else? It's an F-15. Thanks. Okay. Uh, Let me go back to this page. I don't want it to be an (laughs) F-15. For Nick, it's an F-18. For everybody else, it's an F-15. I mentioned that I was uh, doing a lot of uh, singing at uh, at my church and um it was actually the following sunday um i was waiting in between masses sang at the nine o'clock and then normally we have a rehearsal between the masses but we got that week off we didn't have a rehearsal but i usually hang around and sing at the 12 15 so i had a couple of about an hour and a half to kill and i was sitting in my car in the parking lot of the church and there was a roswell uh city of roswell police officer uh, there are usually several of them directing traffic in and out of the uh, parking lots. And he was walking back from his position and he walked by the front of the car and then he 
stopped and he kind of like tapped on my window and I'm thinking, uh oh, I'm in trouble because I was on my phone and I had the engine running and I'm thinking, is it kind of like when maybe you're intoxicated and you're sitting at the wheel of your car and you have the engine running and you're technically driving while intoxicated kind of deal with the phone? You know, you're not supposed to use your mobile device uh, in Georgia. Uh, that law was passed, I think, last year. And so I, I'm thinking, oh, boy, he's going to give me a ticket or something. So I rolled down my window and he said, hi, uh, my name is uh, Noah Kaplan and I listen to your podcast and I love it. And I went, oh, I thought you were going to give me a ticket. <laughs> and, uh, brilliant. Yeah. And I said, are you a pilot? And he goes, nope, just uh, just like, you know, flying and you know, I'm just an, an enthusiast and uh, found your podcast a while back. And he said, I love listening to it. So no, I think you should have given him given him a ticket anyway. <laughs> he undoubtedly deserved it. Well, of course I do. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about all the other things I've done wrong. <laughs> now that I know Dri that driving while stash. No, now yeah. that I know that there's a city of Roswell uh, lieutenant uh, listening to our show, I have to be very careful about what I reveal. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, too late. Very nice meeting you uh, after. Uh, so we, we talked and you know said, said our goodbyes, and then I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm going to go eat somewhere for breakfast. So I, 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 Waffle House sounds like a good place to go. And so I went back around to see if he wanted to join me. I said, I'll buy you breakfast if you want to have breakfast. And unfortunately, he had to stay at the uh, at the church parking lot to uh, take care of the next mass. So anyway, there's that story. And uh, in the airport um, – was it today? Yeah. In Baltimore, we were leaving this morning and uh, I was ordering something from one of the fast food places for breakfast. And uh, I, I saw this guy and his co-pilot walking by, um, but nothing was said. And then I think he must have overheard my voice when I was talking with uh, Brent. And then all of a sudden I see somebody pop up and walk over. Captain Jeff. <laughs> I said, yeah. And he said, I, I recognized your voice. And uh, he said he's been listening to the uh, podcast for a while as well. Uh, captain for a regional um, out of uh, Baltimore. Uh, captain Justin, I believe, is what he said his name was. If not, sorry, but I think it was Justin. Nice to meet you. And then today in Atlanta, walking through the concourse, uh, there was a gentleman that kind of looked at me and I kind of overheard as I went by, he was talking to his wife, said something, Captain Jeff. <laughs> so I kind of turned around and, and looked at him. He goes, are you Captain Jeff? I said, yeah. And so uh, Peter is his name. Did, I, I forget your last name, Peter. Uh, he was there with his wife and his daughter, and they were, uh, I think they were heading to, they had come in from somewhere else, heading down to Houston. So Peter and uh, family, hello, just a shout out to you. And uh, there you go. That's, uh, I think, all I had for my, what I've been doing since the last show. Now next, well, actually this week, um, later this week on Thursday, I'm going to get on an airplane in Atlanta and head to London. And then uh, Captain Nick has uh, very um, graciously um, volunteered to pick me up at the, uh, at the airport in, at Heathrow. And uh, we're going to be there for, or several of us are going to be there for the PTUK 300 episode celebration. So I'm looking forward to that. There you go. Um, and so with that transition, why don't we go right to, Nick, right there, right below me. <laughs> uh, well, um, not a great deal to say, other than I've uh, been busy uh, working out something to say. Uh, they, I was asked to 
uh, produce something for the 300th PTUK show. So I've been busy doing that and uh, catching up with various other bits and bobs. I do have some plain tales waiting to be published, and Jeff is kind enough to upload them. I've put a few up, but I have some more to do. So please uh, bear with me while I get those done. Uh, and the only other thing I'm going to mention is that I got a lovely book. And uh, it's called The Long Flight Home uh, uh, by uh, Leanne Anderson, which is a great name. I like that name very much. Lynn? Uh, sorry? Lynn? Um, L-A-I-N-I-E. Oh, okay. I like uh, that name, too. Lynn? Yeah, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that. Yeah. Anyway, she's the... Oh, you're uh, saying all, Anderson. Yeah, the Anderson's the great name. Ah, uh. oh. Okay. Inside it says, uh, to Captain Nick, keep flying high and keep up the great podcast uh, from uh, Leanne Anderson, 2019. So it's signed by the author. Thank Ooh, you very much indeed. Nice. And was sent to me uh, by Patrick Pullis, one of our fine listeners from Australia. This is South Australia. And Patrick and I often... Uh, uh, PM each other, um, you know, st stories about what he's up to, etc. He does a lot of uh, gliding uh, and is involved with the uh, uh, Australian Air Cadets. So he does uh, a great job with them, um, bringing on young pilots and enthusing the youngsters of Australia with aviation, which is a, a fantastic thing to do. Uh, anyway, this, this book is uh, about, I haven't quite started it yet, but Looking at it, I think it's it's written around the great race, which I did a plain tale about recently. Um, the great race uh, just after the First World War between uh, uh, London and Australia, and uh, yeah. it was uh, won by Para. Well, three guys in a Vickers Vimy, but uh, this is a love story that is intertwined with that race. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. And so thank you very much indeed, Patrick. For we need a, more love. Uh, here. Kind gift. We do. Uh, and of course, uh, with that in mind, uh, Patrick's living uh, in the part of Australia where they've had these appalling bushfires. So just, you know, just Patrick and all our listeners out there in Australia who might be affected or are just suffering the side effects mm. of uh, these bushfires. And we just that had just... Daniel join us in, on Facebook, who's in Sydney, so it's quite smoky this morning. Oh, absolutely. So, mm -hmm. I mean, not only is it terrible for the firefighters, who uh, their guys are dying out there trying to keep these fires under control. It's mm -hmm. the inhabitants who uh, are having their homes destroyed, just incredibly sad. Uh, the destruction of uh, the countryside and the wildlife is horrendous. So, you know, hearts out to you guys uh, and girls. Um, you know, hope it ends soon. But, of course, it's just really the beginning of the the bushfire season. So, you know, we all just pray that uh, uh, it ends soon and uh, things calm down. You perhaps get some uh, wet weather for a while, which would certainly help because they've just been having the worst possible weather conditions for this kind of thing. So we're thinking of you guys. Uh, sorry about that. We wish we could do more. Yeah. Mm. Well said. Well, yeah. All our thoughts and prayers for everybody over there that are experiencing those terrible fires absolutely so uh thanks for the the book uh 
And um, uh, other than that, I'm looking forward to the 300th and the weekend, uh, seeing you guys uh, and, uh, you know, enjoying your company for a little while. It'll probably be way too short. Sorry you can't make it, Dana, but uh, it's going to be great anyway. I was just looking at the flights. I'm considering it. Oh, well, you never know. I would, not I would not have, ruled I would it have, out yet. <laughs> I'd, I'd have to drop my trip, I'm, I'm, but I feel like I'm really missing out. But don't forget to book, book, book your hotel room. I can sleep on the curb. I don't care. <laughs> I'll just sleep outside Jeff's door with a with a vacuum cleaner. Hit it against the door. <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while, I'll wake up yep. and bang, bang. I recommend you fly your trip, Dana. <laughs> just kidding. Why is that, Jeff? Well, the the thing you just explained you were going to be doing to my hotel room. I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, God, it's so tempting. Um, uh, well, Dana, well, is that it, Nick? Yep. That's, All right. Uh, I've looking, got nothing else. Looking to forward say, so. to seeing you as well, uh, Dana. Since we were just hearing from you, what's what's been up with you? Well, actually, I really missed uh, something very important. I failed to talk about uh, a show and a half ago, um, and I just. I don't know what it, I think we just got to involve Christmas uh, talking about it. Uh, you know what everybody did for Christmas, and it was kind of a little hiatus. And I did want to talk about this because it's very informative and um, a very interesting story. I was going into Columbus, Ohio, uh, a small Midwestern. You mentioned it earlier, so it, it spawned my memory. Uh, on my first day, first leg of of my first trip over the Christmas holiday, <clears throat> first round trip. And we had an alternate uh, on on the flight plane, so I always automatically do a, 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 a uh, an auto land check of the airplane, as well as you know it gives me a, a little heightened awareness to check the weather and check things. And, and dispatch was already texting me via the air cars that you know you know the, right now it's not looking so great, but go ahead and we have good alternate and the good weather and so forth. So good communication going on. Coming into Columbus uh, for two eight left, doing the Cat two Autoland approach. Uh, RVR minimums are, are uh, twelve hundred, and we are authorized down to one thousand. However, obviously with the airport approach plate being twelve hundred, that was our minimums. Uh, in a Cat two scenario, we have to have certain uh, recording equipment uh, reporting the RVRs, uh, which are controlling just touchdown, uh, and. The final approach fix on a CAT-2, as long as you have passed the final approach fix, you can continue with the approach and take a look-see with a CAT-2 approach. With CAT-3, you can't if it goes below minimums. So I have no idea why this controller decided to do this, but about five miles outside the final approach fix, the minimums went below, and he called it out. I said, well, that's very nice of you. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to go around. <laughs> And we can no longer continue the approach. <clears throat> so they started spinning us around because it kept on, you know, varying between, I think it was about um, 800 to 14 or 1600 RVR. Uh, they started to swing us around for runway 10 right because that runway is reporting good RVR. We, in the, the primary on, on a CAT 2 is the touchdown it has to be, uh, in this case, 1200. And then mid rollout can be 600, 300, which are actually 300s below cat three minutes. But as long as you have the uh, controlling, required controlling uh, equipment at, at or above those minimums, then you're fine. <clears throat> so they started swinging us around from runway one zero right, and they said, well, now that's gone below. 
and we're out here, and we're still to the east of the airport in in position to go for the uh, two eight left. And I, I looked, you know, had calculated my bingo fuel, and uh, decided, all right, well, we're going to take one last approach at this. If this doesn't work, no matter what, we're going to Cincinnati. So we uh, came in, and they didn't call any changes, but we broke out right at Cat Two minimums at a hundred feet above the ground. Um, and touchdown, the autopilot did a fantastic job um, and put us on the ground safely. Between the two runway side lights and the centerline light was right down the middle. So I, I knew the sight picture was good and taxied the aircraft clear. Uh, we got everybody in, but we were very, very, very close to going around and going to Cincinnati. Landed with uh, with sufficient fuel to make it to, to Cincinnati and have my IFR reserve, so I was happy with that. But uh, we were getting close to that bingo fuel, and, uh, you know, the pucker factor starts to get up a little bit there. Mm -hmm. But that was my first leg on the first day of the first day of my trips and the first time I flew with that guy. So that was very interesting. <clears throat> kind of like you do it in the sim. Yeah. Anyways, that was uh, that was back there uh, December 24th. So let me fast forward. I had the uh, distinct opportunity uh, yesterday to have a uh, interview uh, requested of me. First one I've had, actually, uh, six that I've, I've actually done. And that was uh, ready for takeoff from George Nolly. Oh, cool. Uh, and it was a fantastic. George. I had George. Hi, George. Thank you. It was an amazing experience. Um, Such a nice guy. He is a great guy. What a great interviewer. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I've, I've started listening to his podcast. Uh, you know, obviously, I listened to both you and, uh, well, Nick and, and Jeff, your uh, interviews with him. And so uh, I listened to what he had to ask and how to ask, you know, what he asked and when he asked. And so I had a pretty good idea going into it, what, uh, what we were going to talk about. And it was uh, very, very informative. And he was uh, kind of touched at some of my story and how I ended up where I'm at now, um, which he didn't know. <clears throat> um what else so that's going to be he's telling me it's going to be out on the 13th of january which is this coming monday episode number 360 if you want to Funny. listen then uh ready for takeoff podcast ready for takeoff ready for takeoff.com have gone full circle yeah i guess they yes, have <laughs> three, i'm doing a 360 i'm doing a loop to loop all right uh anyways uh what else oh yeah um i have some audio that we'll play here in a second but flying life podcast two podcasts in one day dispatcher mike was uh, very courteous to uh um invite me down to his house because i had not seen it i wanted to go ahead and see his house and as well as catch up and see his brand new uh vehicle he'll talk about so uh why don't you go ahead and play the audio on that there, okay Captain jeff i'll do that and but before i do let me correct myself it's ready for takeoff podcast Dot com. That's how you can find George, uh, George Nolly's great ready for pay takeoff show. Okay, here we go. I'm going to play the meetup audio, you and Mike. Hello there, APG listeners. This is Captain Dana, and I've had a, a very exciting uh, day today. Got to uh, talk to ready for takeoff and George Nolly. That was a very nice interview, and then somehow my car, I got in my car and it got lost, and it started driving, and somehow this address got entered into the uh, into the GPS. I followed the GPS because it had its nose smelling from all the way about 38 miles away, the wonderful ribs that were being produced and smoked in my honor, and somehow I ended up at this 
guy's house. I don't know. You may have heard of, of him before, uh, but let me tell you what. He put on one hellacious dinner. It was amazing and uh, very enjoyable. His wife and, and kids were very hospitable, beautiful home, uh, and also actually just bought a new vehicle. I'm going to let him tell you all about it. And uh, why don't I just go ahead and start talking about him and introduce him. Anyways, I'll let him introduce himself because he has a podcast himself. And uh, he's going to say hello. Hold on. Here he is. Hello, APG crew and community. It's Dispatcher Mike. And yes, uh, after a year of finally trying to get Dana to come over to my house, I just sent him my schedule for January and said, look, pick a day. Come over any day that's off. We'll make it work. And he goes, well, all right, Monday it is. So uh, quickly went out to the store, bought three lovely racks of ribs, threw them on there at uh, about 1045 this morning out on the smoker. And uh, they were horrible. They were absolutely Liar. <laughs> they were absolutely rubbish. Liar. <laughs> um, no, food turned out good. My wife made some lovely potato salad. Uh, great evening hanging out here with Dana. Now that leaves uh, just you, uh, Captain Nick, for the only uh, APG crew member that has not visited and come and uh, shared and dined with us. So uh, uh, challenge is up for you. Um, as far as the car, I got to show uh, Dana my new car and how it worked, and I got to throw his head into the back of the seat. I have whiplash. <laughs> back of the seat a couple of times. Um, so it's very happy uh, to do it. It's very, uh, it's a very fun car to own and to drive uh, and not put gasoline into it. Um, so, yeah, I'm very, very happy with the car. It's a lot of fun. And yeah, but no, it's anytime we get together as a community, it's always great. And uh, I told Dana to bring a microphone so we could record something. And what's the name of the car there, Mike? Um, I was I was beating around the bush, Dana. Um, but no, I have a, a Tesla Model 3. And let me tell you what. It's an amazing vehicle. Not that I'm um, I'm uh, pushing or advertising for Tesla. It's just uh, uh, it was it was fun to take a ride on it. Uh, I I don't know that I would get one. Um, certainly, I would be able to operate. I'm not so sure about my lovely bride. She can't even turn on the TV. So, anyways, uh, <laughs> anyway, we're gonna continue to have some fun here. And I got to tell you, Mike, you those ribs, you just you just absolutely smoked them. Yeah, no, I really did knock them out of the park. Well, the good news is you get to take some home with you. You get to take some potato salad home with you because my wife thought we, she was feeding the uh, 12th Regiment uh, of the U.S. Army. But uh, definitely get some food home, and you got to have to take some to your beautiful bride, and she needs to come back with you next time. Yeah, we'll, we'll work on that. And, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, once we get all aligned weekends lined up, we can uh, go ahead and uh, hopefully get to uh, do that sometime. And uh, what a beautiful home you have, beautiful family. I can't thank you enough for your hospitality. Yes, there's about uh, at least, what, another 10 pounds of potato salad over there, delicious homemade beans, uh, ribs uh, that were just to die for. Mike, you just, you, just, you just killed it. And we're both sitting here patting our stomachs, and I think I need a wheelbarrow to get out to my vehicle so I can get home. But anyways... Uh, on that note, I'm not going to say anything more at this point. What I am going to say is, Jeff, back to you in the studio. All right, I got it. Thank you for the throw. Um, yes, sir. So that was that was that was a fun day, and uh, sounds like it. Unfor unfortunately, I, I was actually available yesterday because 
of my uh, current condition and the reason why I'm hesitant to even think about this come weekend. Um, so I'm out on uh, out on medical right now, so not good. So we'll, well see. I'm hoping. Keep my fingers crossed. Well, we hope you feel better soon. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. we all do. And uh, thanks, Mike, for the invitation. I will take you up one day. Please and do. It, it's such. I think he, he did invite me, but it was like a Monday. I was like, Mike, work. Work, 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 work. Well, there is there is a little drop of a hint in there, and that's all I'm going to say in that audio recording. So I'm just going to leave that alone. You'll find out soon. Uh, it's a good thing that Julie doesn't listen to the show. Oh yeah, oh she knows. How much chance of that? <laughs> she she <laughs> she knows. She's she is technologically challenged. I mean, it's 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 pretty <laughs> it's pretty funny at times. But uh, you know what? I, I was I was in that Tesla, and it was it's an amazing vehicle. What they've done with it. The fact that he was sitting there without his hands on the steering wheel scared the living bejeebas out of me mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's coming around the corner and we're doing you know 45 48 miles an hour and it's coming around the corner all the cars are at a complete stop around the corner I'm like oh my god <laughs> we're gonna die we're gonna die and he he was actually ready to stop the vehicle but it did stop itself and so it's uh the technology is 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 crazy it's just ludicrous so um uh, one of our uh, people in the chat room, uh, Neville Bounds, uh, was asking, uh, do you think that Mike uh, has just recently parked at the uh, Stavanger Airport? Um, I hope not. Because of the fire there? It's no, I hope not. Yeah, that would be, that'd be a sad <laughs> Unfortunate. day. Unfortunate, yeah. yeah. It's a new car. Good one, though. Naomi was a fantastic host as well, and his kids ah, she's are wonderful. fantastic. Yeah, so. Great family. Had, had a wonderful time. Yeah. Sweet. All right. And uh, hopefully I'll be in. If I'm not over in, in England, and I just checked, by the way, there's the, the, there's no coverage. I can't drop the trip, um, of course. So if not, I may be in Toronto this Sunday. Oh, and neat. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> huh. Do we know anybody in that area? Nobody. Can't think of anyone. Okay. She's shaking her head. <laughs> <laughs> Love to see her new facility in, in residence. Yes. The uh, APG Production Studio. That's correct. All right. Steph. Yes. What you been up to? So I took a week and uh, I had to work. Um, I really only had the the holidays this week. Both fell on Wednesdays, both Christmas Day and New Year's Day. So I only had those days off of work. Um, But I elected not to do much of anything with that time. And it was great. I took a lot of time to sleep in on the days that I was actually off. Um, work volume was maybe a little bit lighter than, than usual for a holiday season. I think that's because things were in the middle of the week and a lot of people were out of town on vacation, whatnot. Um, uh, yeah, I haven't really done much of anything, but I suppose that's a good thing because my schedule for the rest of January is just jam packed. Um, starting uh, this weekend, it's going to be nonstop through like early February. So gonna run. looking forward to that. Going to hmm? run a couple marathons uh, this month? Only, only in training. Oh, okay. <laughs> it is the official start of training for the um, London Marathon. Woo-hoo. When's that? 16 weeks from Sunday, this past Sunday. Okay. So February, or no, February, uh, April 26th, I think. Cool. I keep going to say 28th, but I think it's the 26th. 
So I'll be in town for that. I think another um, aviation podcast host is also going to be running and uh, he'll have some more details out about that soon, but he is running for charity. So if you listen to the plane safety podcast, um, be on the lookout for that. He can use your help to help uh, fundraise for his chosen charity. He's got some information online about that already on Twitter. And so, yeah, that should be a lot of fun. And speaking of London, um, hopefully I'll see some of you guys there this weekend. It's looking more likely than not I will be there. Oh, so it's not com- completely. Well, insured. there's always there's always a chance. Um, okay. Yeah, there's some uh, family medical stuff going on that I've been kind of on the fence about, but things were very reassuring last weekend. So um, I've pretty well committed to, to being there in case unless something major happens, which I, I don't think so. When do you, you suppose know, you'll be showing up? Sometime on Saturday? Saturday morning. Okay. Like well, we hope right to see before. you. <laughs> and, you know, fingers crossed. Uh, we hope to see you fingers as well, crossed. Dana. Yeah, it'll be good if I can can get there. So mm-hmm. hopefully I'll see you guys, Jeff and Nick. And Absolutely. Nick's got, Nick's got a t-shirt um, in his possession that I purchased. I do. Now, do you want me to bring, I'll bring that to the hotel. Yeah, bring it to the hotel if you don't mind. If you forget it, it's no fine. Problems. But yeah. It's well, I can give deal. it to Jeff if nothing else. Yeah. Why don't you wear it, Nick? Uh, yeah, I could. I could probably like get it on my it right his... arm. <laughs> 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 Here and... you go, Steph. Completely yeah. destroyed T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. And actually, uh, some some interesting stuff, quasi-aviation slash weather-related, but also weather-dependent, perhaps, happening next week. So I won't give too many details on that yet, but I should have some information hmm. next week if it happens so some kind of an astronomical event um you could say it's related to the space agency oh. uh, here in the u.s wow. so are you an um, astronaut <laughs> oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to blow it <laughs> no i am not an astronaut uh not even close um but we'll, we'll see um that's a weather dependent event so uh, uh, if, okay. if weather is good um, i might have some Cool stuff to share and talk about next week, aviation and weather related. And um, yeah, gosh, then I'm on vacation and then I'm teaching at a conference. Conference. Oh, and, another one of those. Uh, no, this is this teaching is legitimate. at a conference. <laughs> this is legitimate. And um, yeah, hopefully I find time to be on the show in the next like three weeks. Yeah, well, we'll we'll try to get you on whenever we can and. Yep. I don't know. We'll see. I'm not sure what the schedule is going to be like for the rest of the month for all of us. But we'll, as we always do, we'll just wing it. Yeah. But anyway, it's been good to catch up on sleep. Um, glad to hear Dana's going to be on uh, Ready for Takeoff podcast. And I feel like I need to apologize to George Nolly because he asked me forever ago. And I just never got back to him with a good date because I don't know if there ever was a good day or time. But I don't know. It's still open if the invitation is still out there. So we'll see. Oh, I'm sure it is. Yeah. And... Uh, I'm not an astronaut, but I have people have called me a space cadet. So, I'm not sure. What's the first officers do? I'm sure <laughs> behind my back. <laughs> all right, probably all the mooning you do. <laughs> I think that's it. I think it's time for okay. Let's then uh, do this: the coffee fund, which is your way to support the show financially, if you'd like. Sorry, how much more coffee? And uh, let's see, that's uh, the George, not the George, the, the Jeff Smith um, singing the Java Jive in the background. And let me sing a little bit with him. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. 
He's so much better a singer than I. Anyway, a uh, couple different ways to support us via the Coffee Fund. One is the Coffee Fund Classic method. And since the last episode, a recurring payment or a contribution from Randolph or Randy Ackerman. And a payment from or a contribution from uh, Pierre Engblom. Engblom. So thank you, both of you, for your contributions to the Coffee Fund. And the other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And we have a new executive producer. Yay, where's my... There it is. Applause. Her name. Her name. Cindy. Uh, Waltz. So thank you, Cindy, for your patronage. And if you want to uh, join these fine people, uh, you can head over to our wonderful website, airlinepilotguy.com. And uh, click the coffee tab, and there you'll find more information about how you can be part of this great group of folks. So thank you very much, everyone, for your contributions. And we're glad that you take the time and effort to do that. Captain, incoming message. Let's start with... uh, one and this is from captain andre hi abg crew i love your show in show 405 you spoke of the flight attendant that saved the day by pointing out the need for de-icing seconds before takeoff the article and your on-air comments leave the impression that ice and snow on the wings of the aircraft is a black and white no-go all the time i don't know anything specific about the involved airline procedures however my airline allows a couple of instances where taking off with ice or snow on the wings is okay. First, uh, first off, take off with cold soaked fuel frost on the wings on our Boeing 737 is allowed. They even have lines painted where the ice is allowed. I'm, I'm wondering if that's on the top part of the wing or not. Uh, on the Mad Dog, we can have uh, up to an eighth of an inch of frost on those areas where the cold soaked fuel is, but that's only on the underside. Yeah, same on the Airbuses that I flew, Jeff. But uh, I'm just going to say ice is not the same as frost. No, Uh, that's true. So we have to be real careful of our terms here, Andre, so that we don't make any uh, uh, mistakes. Try and keep above the 50%. Yeah. Okay, he who goes on. Additionally, our airline allows snow on the wings that the captain can determine that the snow is not adhering. I've never needed to use this provision, but I do know that many of our captains that fly up in the Arctic use this exemption a lot. What I have seen happen is that a cold-soaked aircraft will not allow dry snow to stick when observed during the initial pre-flight, but after at the gate a while, and with a new load of relatively warm fuel in the wings, the dry snow will begin to partially melt and stick to the wing. It's also possible that the conditions change from dry adhering snow during the inspection at the gate to wet snow by the time they were ready for takeoff. That is my hypothesis on what happened to the aircraft. That is the subject of the article you spoke of and would perhaps explain the explanation given by the flight crew. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, And in our airline, and I'm not sure about next, but you know, Acme, there is no such exemption for any kind of a a contaminant. It was an absolute no, no for my outfit. Yeah. But I, I'm guessing if you're doing flights to the uh, 
the Antarctic. Is that where he said the Arctic? Uh, Arctic. I'm thinking the Arctic. Yeah, the like Arctic, Arctic Circle. Yeah. Very you're far northern get, North America. Yeah. You're yeah. not going to get great supplies of de-icing fluid up there, are you? Not mm. by the, you know, hundreds of liters that they require to de-ice a reasonable size aircraft. So you're going to have to come up with some other trick. And if you are very cold with very cold snow and it just blows off the aircraft then i guess uh, you know that's that's probably a better solution than squirting thousands of liters of de-icing fluid around but uh, you'd have to know your snow uh, very well and the conditions of your aircraft and what it's likely to do it's not something for a beginner i would say yes but for somebody who flies for a certain seattle-based major u.s airline that mm-hmm. fly up in the uh, state of alaska quite a bit and Canada. Um, yeah, I would imagine you're a little bit more familiar with it. Yeah, I think that's the important that's thing. Though. You've really got to know the risk. And as long as you analyze the risk and with your company, you've decided that certain conditions are acceptable and the manufacturer agrees with it. And that's the big problem we had on the 340s. Uh, we had patches uh, where cold soaked fuel would. Um, cause frost to form on the wings even on a nice day um so uh you know uh, we would say these are very regular patches over the fuel tanks where this frost occurs can we have dispensation if we mark out where they occur and if you guys say it's safe and airbus looked at it and came back and said no nope <laughs> you can't do that interesting so fair enough all right well yeah, if there's snow or ice on the wings of any of the aircraft or the vast majority of the aircraft that I might want to fly, I'm probably not going flying that day. Yeah, it's not a good day to fly. <laughs> <laughs> how, yeah, about but, sky, uh, how about sky jumping? You know, uh, jumping. that would be cold. much nicer. It's cold. It's really that cold. <laughs> not a good idea. Uh, I cold. got out of an aircraft once when it was like, it was below freezing at 14,000 feet, like well below, like probably mm-hmm. close to zero. I don't really have any, you know burning desire no pun intended to do that again <laughs> you're mixing your, your metaphors stuff. Up? <laughs> no but my hands sure did oh that could be a problem yeah it's hmm. not good i don't know if you're trying to fumble around for that uh <laughs> <laughs> no it's actually more when you're when you're under canopy oh. and you've got to you know manage your toggles and you're like am i even holding mm. this thing anymore i can't tell what's going on with my <laughs> can't, can't feel my toggles no. <laughs> nasty. A show title very nasty <laughs> let me let me write that down because you know if we don't <laughs> yeah. we can't feel my toggles can't <laughs> feel my toggles great inspired by steph thanks you're welcome just, just go to the uh, or frozen toggles. That's another good one, Liz. <laughs> frozen toggles, yes. Frozen toggles. Okay. Well, thank you, Captain Andre. I did not know that there were uh, any kind of uh, dispensations or exemptions allowed for any U.S. carrier. So that's interesting. Thank you for for, uh, for letting us know. And uh, moving on with uh, Robert in uh, Mayretta, um, he sent us a link to an article from the Marietta Daily Journal. And uh, he said, uh, Happy New Year, crew. Just passing along some local news and wondered if you all had any connections. And so let's see. What is this all about? Lockheed Jetstar makes aviation history in Cobb. And uh, let's see. A special moment in aviation history was made in Cobb County on Monday. Cobb County is one of the uh, 
well, I don't know how many of them are considered uh, metropolitan counties anymore, but we have uh, that's one of the big ones in the Atlanta area. Um, when a uh, operational model of a unique Lockheed aircraft landed for the very last time, the pristinely maintained Jetstar 1329, built in Marietta in 1966 and once owned by the Saudi Arabia royal family, touched down at Cobb County International Airport, McCollum Field, just after 9 a.m. to applause from around 100 spectators. It is the last working Lockheed Jetstar, an aircraft considered to be the grandfather of today's corporate jets, as it was the first of this class when it first flew in the late 1950s, according to the Aviation History and Technology Center, a Marietta museum. A Florida family that's owned the aircraft for the last 30 years donated it to the museum, formerly known as the Aviation Wing. Pilot John Puffenbarger, who spent the last 21 years of flying the plane around the world for the family members uh, who wished to remain anonymous, said they wanted it to return to Marietta, where it was built. Um, we were able to preserve a piece of art, he said. The aircraft probably has more photos snapped of it than any other aircraft in the world. The plane, still featuring World War II technology, will become a star attraction at the museum where visitors will be able to climb into the cockpit and try all the buttons and dials or sit in one of uh, 11 passenger seats fitted with stowable wooden tray tables, ashtrays, and cup holders. Uh, there is already a Jetstar at the museum, but it's a little older. It's not operational, and it's not in as good of a condition as this one, said Mark Morgan, the museum director. Worth over $300,000, the Jetstar donated Monday was one of 202 built in Marietta, and Lockheed also built two prototypes of the aircraft in California. Many of Lockheed's California, why did I say it like that? California. Many of Lockheed's Jetstars went to large corporations, celebrities, and governments around the world, according to a news release from the Aviation Museum. Variants of the aircraft also served United States Air Force leaders, including presidential transport to President Lyndon B. Johnson. The donated plane will be dismantled and trucked to the Aviation Museum, where it will be reconstructed with the aim of it being open to the public within six months. You know, I've not been to that museum. Have you, Dana? I have not. Yeah, we should do that someplace. We should do a meetup up there. Yeah, that would be great. Idea. Yeah. Uh, plans to have the aircraft land at Dobbins Air Reserve Base in Marietta, where it took off on its maiden flight five decades ago, flew through, fell, not flew through, fell through, because the, don the donation had to happen before December 31st, and Dobbins couldn't accommodate the landing within that time at such short notice. So they flew it into, oh, it's all a tax-related thing, I guess. Good, a good deduction for tax year 2019. Um, Monday's yeah, Jetstar. Because, because Dobbins is really a busy place. Yeah. I mean, well, they've got see, thousands of flights a day. I don't know why you know, they couldn't. No, it's, it's really. You, you weren't in the military, uh, so you don't understand. They, prior, they all took Christmas off. Prior permission required. <laughs> you ever see that PPR thing? That's yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's like, um, yeah. Yeah. I completely understand. <laughs> not gonna happen. Sorry. Yeah, it's not right, but it's uh, the way things are. What did, you, did you drop your jaw? What, what happened there? Yes. Was that I'll one of your dogs? <laughs> it's actually my phone. Oh, your phone. Uh oh. <laughs> I hope you didn't crack the screen on it. I hope the, I hope the battery's okay. <laughs> yeah, I've got an external battery case on that too. Anyway, well, that'll make a good fire. <laughs> yes, extra fire. So I'm not sure what. Uh, Robert is um, kind of alluding to when he said that um, wondered if y'all had any connections. 
Hmm. Well, I guess it's an old airplane, you're old people. <laughs> yeah. Just Thank the, you. Just that it's local <laughs> to you guys. Local-ish. Oh, okay. Oh, Nick, you're such a peach. Um, <laughs> anything else I can help with? No. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, I'll get you back somehow. Of course you will. You just watch it. Um, let's see. Item three. I guess we're getting close to that point in the show. Let's keep going. Um, this is from Liz, our producer. Um, she said, long read, but interesting insights. Okay. Does that mean I really want to read the whole thing or not? Yeah, you got 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> French investigators, long impeded by Cairo, says pilots. Thank you, Dana. Technicians ignored flaws preceding fatal 2016 incident. When an Egypt air flight crashed on its way from Paris to Cairo in May of 2016, international law designated the Egyptian government to lead a probe to find out why the jet plunged suddenly into the Mediterranean Sea, killing all 66 people on board. <laughs> I just got a message from our producer. Do not read the entire article, Jeff. <laughs> okay. It's quite lengthy. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I got the direction. Thank you very much. The investigation was never completed. Instead, Egyptian authorities said a bomb had likely brought the plane down and withheld key evidence from French investigators, citing the secrecy of their counterterrorism inquiry. But three and a half years later, a French judicial probe has alleged that maintenance and safety lapses by Egypt Air left the plane unsafe to fly in the days before it crashed, according to confidential documents received or reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. Is this the Shamashek one that... Where the guy came on with a laptop, mm. they thought, and blew no, up? No, this is one where okay. was out in the middle of the med at night. Oh, right. Okay. And, uh, and, and, carry on. Carry yeah. On. And, and, and there was some allusion to perhaps a personal electronic device or something. There, like there was some kind of a fire or something in the cockpit. All right. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I hadn't heard a lot about this uh, in quite some mm. time. Um, oh, here we go. The very next sentence. A leak of oxygen in the cockpit preceded a fire that likely disabled the plane according to an expert report circulated this month, contradicting, contradicting Egypt's claim that a terrorist act brought down the aircraft. The plane registered serious mechanical errors on its final five flights, according to automated messages sent by the plane. Egypt Air Pilots and the airline's tech center in Cairo largely ignored those errors, according to the documents. Investigators are also questioning whether the Egypt Air technician who inspected the plane in Paris was qualified to service aircraft in Europe. Before leaving Cairo for Paris on its penultimate flight, the plane should have been checked during its four previous flights, should not have left Cairo after the appearance of repeated faults that were not reported by successive teams, according to one of the documents. Uh, France opens a judicial investigation uh, whether, uh, whenever one of its citizens is killed in a plane crash. The Egypt Air Inquiry, which is continuing, hasn't established whether the crash was caused by the airline's alleged lapses that investigators identified. Um, That's three years ago. Yeah. More than three years ago. Mm -hmm. they, are they sitting on this? Are they, do you think? I don't know. Uh, well, I wonder. I don't know. Anyway, if you want to read more about this um, probe of the Egypt air crash, uh, It'll be in the show notes. Again, that's from the Wall Street Journal. And well, you can read about all the nitty-gritty details. Okay. 
It, mm. it certainly does seem strange, though, right? Just the whole mm-hmm. how everything was looked into. Anyway, I wonder what uh, maybe they talk. I, I actually have to admit I have not read this yet uh, from from top to bottom, but uh, I'm wondering if the faults that were reported were to do with the oxygen system? Or? Well, I think I found a key uh, paragraph, okay. Jeff, just speed reading through. It said, on the plane's last flight, its cockpit voice recorder registered what French investigators believe was a high-pressure oxygen leak shortly before the captain declared that a fire had broken out, according to the documents. French investigators said that two maintenance operations were performed on oxygen supply systems in the cockpit, one three days before the crash, but that they couldn't find documents that would provide more detail about these operations. Hmm. Hmm. So it sounds like maybe there was some kind of a fault that shouldn't been, should have been taken care of, but hadn't been properly yeah, it might well be the case. Hmm. All right. Well, again, uh, look for this in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. Um, and I, I, I'm going to have to actually read the entire thing when I get a chance. Um, okay. This is from Pasadena, Brian. Yay. We haven't heard hey, from Brian. you in a while. Yeah, we miss you. Um, the photo is from my backyard. Happy new decade to all. Fly safely, Brian. And... So there is a picture here that he included in his feedback, a, a beautiful Southern California day, blue sky and uh, remnants of uh, chemtrails in the background um, and, <laughs> palm uh, trees. and palm trees and an interesting looking airplane, uh, the flying wing, the B2. Um, let's see. United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Nicola, Nicola Rogue Polidor makes history in Pasadena on New Year's Day New Year's Day as the first female pilot ever to fly the B2 stealth bomber over the opening of the Rose Parade. The 8:03 a.m. B2 flyover kicks off the parade and Pasadena's first day of a new decade. Uh, she told the Pasadena Now, she and her crew are honored to conduct these flyovers and will remember it for the rest of our lives. Uh, the B2 flyover has become a 15-year annual highlight as the Rose Parade steps off. This year's 8 a.m. opening spectacular performance featuring Latin Grammy winner Allie Brooke of Fifth Harmony and Puerto Rican singer-songwriter Faruco, along with 19-time Grammy winner Emilio Estefan and the China Hills High School drumline, will be followed by the flyover. Some good, good information there. Uh, the 509th bomb wing based at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri announced that she would be piloting the B-2 with Major Justin Rocky Spencer. So anyway, very cool. Yeah, I didn't it realize is. that was a tradition to always have a B-2 flyover at that event. Except before they had the B-2. Well, yeah, I mean, for the past 15 years. Yeah, that's a long time. <laughs> Presumably they had a B-1 before. Then. Yeah. Sure. Then, um, then the B-1 and a the half. Just the original two. B. Just the original B. B-17. B. Yeah. You know, it was always a shame. Our hotel was right there in Pasadena. Um, and we used to spend our, 
uh, layovers there. Uh, we had 48 hours to enjoy it. But whenever the Rose Bowl came around, uh, the hotels filled up, so they shipped us down to Long Beach. So we never got a chance to do a trip there during uh, the Rose Bowl parade or something. But one year I did uh, manage to uh, blag my way into one of the big um, warehouses where they build a lot of the um, floats and um, was able to walk around, take pictures, chat to a lot of the volunteers, that the petal pushers, I think they call themselves, <laughs> who, who do this. They come from all over America uh, for a couple of weeks, uh, and you know they often do it year after year to come and uh, build those things. I was just really uh, gobsmacked by the amount of time and effort that went into building that amazing uh, uh, parade up. Yeah, I've seen... Um like documentaries or television spots mm -hmm. on you know, the, how they come up with uh, all those flower petals on the floats. Very interesting. Mm. I'll have, to, have to get out there for it one year, some year. On your bucket list, right? Yeah. Good chance. Good how many to visit, buckets uh, do you have? <laughs> A lot, and they're all empty. <laughs> oh, boy. Good excuse to uh, visit Pasadena, Brian, though. So Yeah. Absolutely. Any excuse is a good excuse. To it is. It visit. really is. You know what we need to do? Um, we need to head out to California for the, uh, what is it? What is it the, the crazy, the cranky, the cranky flyer cranky flyer uh, thing at the, the LAX uh, yeah. meetup the at the in and, in and out, out Burger? Yeah. Yeah. We should do, that should be a, that should sure. definitely be a meetup. Just take that over. Yeah. Please, I can get there easy. We, we should maybe do that. We'll, we'll, we'll try to figure out when that is this year. Head out there and okay. do that. That'd be fun. Okay, we'll definitely see Brian there, right? Because he was there oh, last I'm year. Oh, sure. Yeah, he did an interview. He better be of, there. He did it's an like, interview of um, Munet, Munoz. Uh, is he still the United CEO? Whoever the head of United is. Yes, <laughs> he is. He is. He's okay. still hitting. He's yeah. still head of United. He did a good interview of him. He he was there actually. It was pretty cool. Okay, um, guess what time it is. Plain tales. Yes. Time? Yeah. Oh. It's uh oh well if you want to go to bed, you're welcome to. But if not, and you want to listen to something great by the old pilot, uh it's this week's plain tale. Sounds like a drag. The old pilot's plain tales. Sounds like a drag. Musings are a worry. They lead to humming and whoring, beard scratching and brow furrowing. Whilst much contemplation, rumination and cogitation takes place. So it was when I recently glimpsed a photograph of the Convair 990A, Coronado. Not a well-known airliner. It was the successor to the more successful, and that's not saying much, Convair 880. A little late to the game, Convair was building four-engined airliners to compete with the Boeing 707 and DC-8. Their design didn't win in many areas. It was smaller than its competitors and more expensive to operate. But at the time, Convair thought that it was going to be all about speed. They were going to build the fastest subsonic airliner in the world and they would get their passengers coast to coast in more luxury and quicker than anyone else. They were going to corner the market. 
Just how were they going to achieve this? Well, first of all, they were going to employ turbofan engines that were going to increase the thrust. But interestingly, the fans would be at the back of the engine, sucking air through the bypass area rather than blowing it. And they were going to employ anti-shock bodies on the upper trailing edge of the wings. It was these large devices that had caught my attention when I first saw the photo. At first I thought they might be four additional engines, which would have made it an eight-engined airliner. Cool! But then I realised I couldn't see a jet pipe or intake, so wondered if they were piston engines or turboprops, and I just couldn't see the pusher propellers. Not quite so cool, and a bit like an airliner version of the Convair B-36 Peacemaker, with six turning and four burning, or more commonly, two turning, two burning, two smoking, two choking, and two more unaccounted for. So, not engines, but aerodynamic devices, that also conveniently held fuel. And what's more, the same principle is still used today. The big pods on the 990A don't look anything like modern anti-shock devices, but they served the same purpose. They reduced drag. Almost as big as the engine pods, these sleek-looking bubbles started from about one-third of the cord, beginning at a point and growing in girth while they stretched back well beyond the trailing edge until they shrank back into another point. The big question was, did they work, and if so, how? And the answer is firstly, yes, they did work. It is generally agreed that the Convair 990, particularly the 990A version, was the fastest of the subsonic airliners. In May 1961, the original 990 prototype set a record of Mach 0.97 in level flight, at an altitude of 22,500 feet, equivalent to a true airspeed of 675 miles an hour, which, for those of you who bimble around in an aircraft, that's 586.6 knots. The 990A, which had the four-wing-mounted anti-shock body speed capsules and substantial streamlining of the engine pylon-wing interface, improved on that original speed, reaching 700 miles an hour, 608 knots. Convair's sales, publicity and enthusiasm department were unbelievably enthusiastic about the new aircraft. Let's go over to the flight line and talk to the experts about it. This is Kelly Owen. And Kelly is American's acceptance pilot at Convair. Kelly, how is the 990 business? You can see for yourself, Larry, it's a fine airplane. Well, I hear it's a good flying airplane, too. That's true. We're very enthusiastic about it. Are there any special features that you're particularly enthusiastic about, Kelly? Larry, there are many, one of which the speed stability system we're very enthusiastic about. So the next time one of you airline pilots comes home in a strong jet stream and sees 600 knots ground speed clock up, please don't stick it on Facebook. The Convair 990A could do it way before you were a twinkle in your parents' eyes and in still air. 
Sadly, the 990 and 990A didn't sell well and lost the company a shedload of money. It appears that getting into LA 45 minutes earlier than your competitors wasn't worth the expense and people really didn't care that much, but for me that wasn't the point. The point was, what was in those wacky pods that allowed this airliner to crack along so close to the speed of sound? The answer was indeed the funny pods at the back of the wing, but to explain why, I'm going to have to put my fast jet QFI hat on and explain a bit about high-speed flight. Let me start by reminding you that sound comes to an ear near you via the medium of air, which is why, to quote the film Alien, in space no one can hear you scream. When something makes a noise, it moves air in the form of a wave, which spreads out like the ripples on a pond. The ripples move quite fast, but the speed is dependent on the density and temperature of the air, amongst other things. At sea level, and at 21 degrees centigrade, that's 70 Fahrenheit, they reach 770 miles an hour, that's 669 knots. If the thing making that noise is an aircraft that can go quite fast, the sound waves it creates will only run ahead of the aircraft at the speed of sound minus the speed of the aircraft. As the speed of the aircraft increases towards the speed of sound, the distance between it and the sound waves in front gets smaller and they start to bunch up continue to accelerate to the speed of sound and eventually the sound waves merge together into what is termed a Mach wave. The Mach wave marks the limit of the influence of the aircraft and all of the sound, all of the pressure waves from it have now formed into a single wave at right angles to the direction of travel. This is termed a normal Mach wave that's normal, as in at right angles. If the aircraft were to accelerate more, the normal Mach wave would change shape into a cone, but for today's tale, we don't need to go that fast. If someone's standing around minding their own business, and they happen to be under your aircraft as it does this trick of creating a Mach wave, they would hear nothing of your approach until the moment you passed overhead, when all the collected sound generated by your machine would hit them in one go. Great for surprising your mates and putting up as a YouTube video. As an aside, in supersonic flight there are in fact two waves created. One is the bow shock wave that, because of the local changes in air temperature caused by the passage of the aircraft, sits a little way ahead, and the other is the shock wave from the wings and fuselage, etc. This gives a distinctive double boom. We should perhaps consider the nature of a shock wave before we go about frightening suckers to put on YouTube. A shock wave is a very narrow region, about one ten thousandth of an inch, or 0.00254 of a millimetre, and it represents a high state of compression. Remembering that noise are just pressure waves, and a shock wave is a bunch of those put together, it's not surprising that it sounds loud and startling, something similar to a thunderclap or explosion. 
The Crack of a Bullwhip is a miniature version, since the fast-moving tip of the whip exceeds the speed of sound creating the noise. The strongest sonic boom ever recorded was 7,000 pascals, that's 144 pounds per square foot, and it didn't cause injury to the researchers who were exposed to it. The boom was produced by an F-4 Phantom flying just above the speed of sound at an altitude of 100 feet, that's about 30 metres. I digress. We need to get back to our Convair 990A, or more accurately, its anti-shock bodies. The big problem with a shockwave is the drag it produces, particularly in the transonic region, that's Mach 0.8 to Mach 1.2. When shockwaves form, they produce drag. The enormous pressure change that occurs in a shockwave creates an extreme amount of drag that rises the closer the aircraft gets to Mach 1. It's not just the actual speed of the aircraft as a whole that we're concerned about, and without going into the whole how-does-an-aeroplane-fly thing, you need to know that curved surfaces on an aircraft will accelerate the air travelling over them. So whilst we might be flying along at only 80% of the speed of sound, Mach decimal 8, part of the airframe, say the top of the canopy or the cockpit, the upper surface of the wings, uh, tailplanes, rudder, etc., might well have air going over them that might be closer to Mach 1 and producing shockwaves. The point at which these shockwaves start to form is known as the critical Mach number, or just M-crit, and is defined as the lowest Mach number at which airflow over some point of the aircraft reaches the speed of sound. When I was still flying the A340, this was an easy thing to demonstrate. From an economical cruise speed of, say, around Mach decimal 8.2, the flight management computer might show me that I'm landing with 10 tonnes of fuel. If I selected a higher speed, say Mach 0.84, the wave drag would increase and the engines would have to work harder. Now I could see that my landing fuel was going down to, say, 5 tonnes. Crank up the speed to Mach decimal 8.6, and wave drag would be really getting hold, and the fuel would drop into minus figures. That increase of speed by only 4% could result in a dramatic increase in drag and a corresponding climb in fuel consumption. Delaying the arrival of MCRIT, the start of Mach drag rise, became the holy grail of early jet airliner design, and there were several key features that manufacturers used to achieve their goal. The first has become so common that we tend to ignore it. Wing sweep. On a swept wing, only the component of the airflow to pass over that is at right angles to the leading edge affects the wing. This means that the critical drag rise is a function of the cosine of the angle of sweep. In theory, therefore, it's quite possible for the airflow over the wing to have reached the speed for M-crit, but the flow at right angles to the leading edge is still subsonic, delaying the drag rise. This is shown by the formula, Mach critical drag rise swept equals Mach critical drag rise straight over the cosine of the wing sweep. 
Of course, the wing need not be swept when it's possible to build a wing that's extremely thin. This solution was used on a number of designs, uh, beginning with the Bell X-1, but this isn't a practical solution for an airliner. Having considered wing sweep and decided that it alone wouldn't do the job, the designers at Convair moved on to the Whitcomb Area Rule. The concept was first discovered by Otto Frenzy, who was working for Junkers in 1944 when he filed the patent. Several others came close to developing a similar theory, particularly Dietrich Cushman, who went on to work in the UK designing Concorde. The brilliant American designer Richard Whitcomb, after whom the rule is named, independently discovered the rule in 1952 whilst researching shockwaves at Langley. He concluded that, and I quote, disturbances and shockwaves are simply a function of the longitudinal variation of the cross-sectional area. Put more simply, if you salami slice an aircraft from nose to tail and measure the area of each slice, it should increase and then decrease smoothly without any significant bumps on the way. Obviously, the wings can't be done away with, but the increase in area should be progressive and as much as possible reduced by, for example, narrowing the fuselage where the wings are fitted. When his ideas were applied to the prototype YF-102 Delta Dagger, for example, an aircraft that couldn't exceed the speed of sound in level flight suddenly could. The influence can be seen in many subsequent designs, such as the Thunder Chief, the Hustler, the F-4 Phantom and the B-1B Lancer. Even though these are supersonic military aircraft, the principle of area rule applies equally to airliners travelling at transonic speeds. In the case of the Convair 990A, an examination of the cross-sectional areas revealed that there was a sharp reduction in the cross-sectional area around the trailing edge of the wing, which was causing significant wave drag. This was smoothed out by the addition of the anti-shock bodies, which also provided a convenient place to store extra fuel. But where are the shock bodies on modern airliners, you might ask? Has the rule changed? Not at all, but modern designers have found more elegant ways to smooth out their cross-sectional areas and obey area rule and achieve something close to the Sears hack body, the shape which allows a minimum wave drag for a given length and volume. Next time you're doing a bit of plane spotting, take a look at the large flap tracks on many airliners. These large fairings are found on the trailing edges of the wing and house the mechanism for deploying the flaps. They could be designed much smaller, but are deliberately created large and long to improve area rule. The Airbus A340 is a classic example, but this trick is also used on such aircraft as the A310, the Boeing 747 and the Airbus A380, to name just a few. Whitcomb also found that a large bulge above the forward fuselage also improved transonic aerodynamics, a feature that the 747 also employs, not just for area rule, but also to allow the captain to sit on his wallet. Another example were the Cushman carrots, pods that extend behind the trailing edge of the Handley Page Victor, one of Britain's V-bombers. And if we look across the old Iron Curtain, 
we can see that Soviet designs took advantage of area rule as well. The Tupolev Tu-95 Bear has very large pods extending behind the inboard engines well beyond the wing trailing edge. These house the main undercarriage but also serve as area rule pods. The Tu-16 Badger does the same. Sadly, for the Convair 990, a bit of exotic area rule didn't fix all the problems, even though they called them speed pods and made them a publicity feature. They always seem to be surrounded by pods. Uh, these pods, Larry, stamped this the Convair 990 airplane. No other airplane can make this claim. Well, what is the main job of the speed pods? Well, the important function, of course, is to make the airplane go faster. And it's a real exciting and effective application of the same area rule used on fighter airplanes. And it cut down drag or have an effect like that? Yes, you see, on even on an airplane such as... It had been American Airlines who wanted the aircraft, but although they could have boasted of having the fastest airliner in the West, they told Convair that the aircraft didn't meet the promised specification. When the line shut down, they had produced only 37 990s, and it led Convair's parent company, General Dynamics, to suffer what was at the time one of the largest corporate losses in history. <laughs> just kidding was I wasn't I don't think funny that really, noise. I did not deserve or that did not deserve crickets uh, that was really interesting well I mean it I did know. in a good way <laughs> in a good way yeah it's yeah. actually uh, an homage to uh, technical stuff on the APG that we don't really do that often and that was really good stuff uh, yeah. I, uh, well, I'd hate to uh, take over Miami Rick's throne but uh, <laughs> Yeah, sometimes I, I find a you know I, I find an interesting thing like that, and I I wonder how interesting other people will find it. Well, I hope they find it reasonably interesting. Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely. Yeah, I, I uh, if you're watching the video, which by the way I need to take the uh, picture off of the screen right now, but uh, during the uh, plane tail, I was able to find some uh, photos of the uh, Convair 990. Uh, with those very strange-looking speed pods um, on it, and uh, I I didn't know that that's what their purpose was. That's and and the bear bomber, I know exactly what you're talking about. Those are the same kind of strange-looking pods um, extending from the trailing edge of the of the engine pods. That's right. And uh, when, when next time you look at a you know an airplane with uh, you know reasonable. Uh, need for area rule, uh, then take a look at the, the flat tracks and the devices on the back of the wing, uh, and uh, you will go, well, actually, yeah, they probably don't need to be nearly that big or stick back that far for just flat tracks, which can mm -hmm. be quite small. So mm -hmm. the answer is that there's a lot of empty space in there because they're just trying to increase the cross-sectional area of that portion of the uh, aircraft to smooth out uh, the um, overall effect and reduce those uh, Mac waves. I think that was anyway. uh, good stuff. Really good stuff. Good. Mm -hmm. So good, good, good. more of that, please. That was yes, good. Sir. Yeah. All right. So how did you know all about all that stuff? Oh, well, I, he's a consummate <laughs> aviation professor, professional. I, I lived in the air force. Really? That's what the air force was for. Yes. <laughs> you must've been quite an advanced instructor 
in your time? I had my moments. <laughs> okay. He's such, such a modest person. <laughs> um, let's continue with the feedback. Uh, item five, Ralph sent in this link to an article. Uh, he says, Churchill Airport plan to rename Heathrow never moved ahead. And this is from uh, ABC News. Um, newly public documents reveal that former British Prime Minister John Major was interested in renaming Heathrow Airport after wartime leader Winston Churchill, but never moved forward on the idea. Documents released Tuesday show that Major considered the idea in 1996 after receiving a letter urging him to drop the stupid name of Heathrow from the UK's busiest airport. New York has Kennedy Airport, Paris has De Gaulle, and we have the stupid name of Heathrow, wrote businessman Harvey Spack to the Prime Minister. It should be renamed with the name of the greatest man of the century who has no truly great memorial in our country. I can only see this as a tremendous boost to the feel-good factor for all of us. The letter indicated that Spack knew Major and felt comfortable addressing him as Dear John. Major wrote oh, back. Dear John letter. Yeah, it was a Dear John letter. <laughs> Major wrote back expressing interest. Thank you for your intriguing idea about renaming Heathrow Airport after Sir Winston Churchill. I'm looking into this, and I'm grateful to you for raising it. But Major never proposed the change. The sprawling airport was named Heathrow after the small village of that name that was removed to make way for it. While Churchill never received the honor, Slain Beatle John Lennon did get similar recognition from his home city when the Liverpool Airport was renamed Liverpool John Lennon Airport in 2001. It was the first British airport named for an individual. Uh, come over here and then just about every airport you go to is named. <laughs> yeah. Even say. if it's not well known, it's probably still named after someone. Right. Yeah, it's not considered a terribly big honor, is it? Um, I guess I it know. depends on... <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure Maybe. there's something better we could do for one of our greatest country's leaders. But the trouble, the other trouble is, of course, that it's politically yeah. linked. So that's you know. the part of it I hate, the politics yeah. of it. And that's exactly. why I refuse to play that game. <laughs> but having said that, Churchill led a coalition government during the war. So all parties were represented. There you go. So there you go. Very bipartisan yep. type of guy. I guess right? it had to be. Yeah. Do you, Multi, uh, do you think multi-partisan, bipartisan? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Do you think there's enough airport names for Atlanta yet? Oh, no, no. We need more. Yeah. I think they're going to come up with more. That's why I call it the Atlanta International Airport. That's why I say, welcome to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Not the. What are you supposed to say? Maynard Jackson. Um, no, Maynard William B. Hartsfield, Maynard Jackson, Jackson International Airport. Airport. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I, love wow. it. I, I like the way we named one of our airports after a, a thief and a robber. Oh, really? Yeah. For a while. Robin Hood? Robin Hood. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the Nottingham Airport? Yeah. Okay, cool. I, I, my personal favorite is crap. Yeah, well, <laughs> we've always thought that. Yeah, which you is can, Rapid go City. Ahead. We'll, yeah, which um, is Rapid City. Oh, KRAP. Yeah, we can play that game. Yeah. We have uh, LIT, put the K in front of it. You got that one? <laughs> Charlotte. Um, I was being nice. <laughs> yeah. Charlotte. <laughs> yeah, Charlotte. Anyway. You can go to Coma. Coma. We got uh, Cattle, which is Cattle. the Atlanta Airport. Atlanta. Yep. Although yeah. Charlotte is yeah, Charlotte. Yeah, <laughs> International Airport, named after a former mayor of Charlotte. I think. Oh, what is it, actually? Charlotte Douglas. Oh, Douglas. Douglas. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, 
I don't know Douglas's first name. Very so close to the McDonald Douglas. Bob. Yes. Bob I thought Douglas is a first name. I think it was Ben. <laughs> it is, but in this case, or it's Douglas Douglas. The last yeah, name. Douglas Douglas. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway. All right, let's go. Six. Ham Radio Jim. Uh, Ham Radio Jim here with just a short blurb for mainly Captain Nick. During episode 405, you had a very nice discussion regarding Leo Laporte, the twit guy, the This Week in Technology uh, podcast network. I, too, have been enjoying his broadcast for years. Thought you'd like to know that he is an, also an amateur radio operator, call sign Whiskey 6 Tango Whiskey Tango, uh, and sometimes offers pieces on the subject. That is all. Happy New Year from Ham Radio Jim. 73 Whiskey 2 November Sierra Foxtrot. Um, oh, 73 Jim. Thanks for that. I shall listen out for him. Yeah, he's not a... <laughs> He is technically a ham radio guy. Uh, I don't know if he does that much of it, but I don't know. You know, lately he's been well, talking more about. He has a lot of time, considering yeah. the amount of time he's in front of a microphone during stage. Or he probably doesn't want to spend his evenings doing it as well. But he did hire, uh, or hire. Uh, he got Bob Heil, the guy that makes these Heil PR40 oh, yeah, microphones, yeah, yeah. who is a huge ham radio guy, and he has yeah. actually a, a what was it called? Ham radio, ham ham radio. Ham Nation or something like that on uh, on the Twit Network. He has a separate podcast that oh, he hosts. Okay. Yeah, um, I don't recall the exact name, but anyway, a lot of good shows over there on the Twit Network. And uh, Leo is a I, one of my idols. All right, um, thank you, Jim. Uh, Micah Seven. Uh, let's see. This is an article from Space.com. Space Force. An unidentified astronaut aboard the International Space Station had a deep vein thrombosis, a DVT, or blood clot in the jugular vein of their neck, according to a new case study. The astronaut's identity and exactly when the incident, incident took place are being kept secret for privacy reasons, so identifying information was omitted from the case study. The astronaut was two months into a six-month stay at the International Space Station, ISS, when the DVT was discovered. This was the first time a blood clot was discovered in an astronaut in space, and NASA had no established method for treating this condition in a zero-gravity environment. Um, so, Steph, uh, what can you tell us about uh, blood? Uh, these DVTs are pretty dangerous things, aren't they? They can be, certainly. Um, yeah. You know, you certainly don't want it to travel to the lungs and cause a clot there, because that can um, be quite quickly um fatal actually mm. um, this one was discovered in the jugular vein so in the neck and what they were doing was a research study um, using ultrasound mm -hmm. so they were uh, basically taking uh, ultrasound pictures of each other I suppose to do a study on how body fluids are redistributed in zero gravity and they just happened to find this deep vein thrombosis um, yeah. by chance by chance completely by oh. chance um, you know, they basically said if, if they weren't doing the study, they don't know what the outcome would have been. Oh, wow. Um, fortunately they do have a supply of, um, right. limited supply of a lot of different types of medications on the international space station. One of which, um, was, I forget what they did first, anoxaparin. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not, not Coumadin, not Warfarin, oh, okay. <laughs> surprisingly, not Warfarin, which is rat poison. Um, anoxaparin, uh, which is Lovenox. Um, which is a blood thinner, and it's given uh, by injection. So you actually have to give yourself a subcutaneous injection of this medication um, generally every 12 hours. So they did that for 40 days, 
And then on the 43rd day, I'm not sure what happened in those three days in between, um, they, <laughs> they resupplied the International Space Station with Apixaban, which is also known as Eloquis, at least here in the United States. Um, and that's an oral um, uh, blood thinner, which does not require the same type of regular monitoring like Coumadin Warfarin does with blood draws. So, interesting. Yeah. So... I guess this person got through it just fine. As, yeah, as far as we know, um, no other uh, ill effects from it. Wow. And would would gravity going. have an effect on a blood clot's behavior in the bloodstream, do you think? Steph? You know, I, I I can imagine all kinds of interesting things. So if you, um, you know, the reason why we worry about them so much in people's legs, generally you get DVT clots in the, the lower extremities. Um, has to do with stasis and being on your feet or having your feet in a dependent or your legs in a dependent position there. Um, but this one was in the jugular, which is not a common place generally to get a clot like that, at least as far as I'm concerned about. I'll probably get all kinds of um, feedback from vascular surgeons it, and specialists. Is the, isn't the jugular quite a, a big um, it vein? Is, uh, yeah, and a lot of these deep veins can be um, quite large. So... Um, hmm. yeah. And that's why you can get very large clots that can then block off the blood supply in the, uh, pulmonary veins. And it's actually so. a blood clot in the jugular that actually caused my buddy and my fraternity brothers uh, stroke. Oh, wow. I talked yeah. about it several episodes ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. It was, <clacht> he had a mal malformation in his, the way the jugular ran up, it kind of took a 90 degree bend and another 90 degree bend. And all it took was a very small clot to get in there and, uh, and it mm. did. And that's what causes stroke. Hmm. So, um, would a blood clot cause uh, impaired um, ability to think? It, well, it depends on how blood flow is being affected. So, you're talking about venous return here, not. No, I'm thinking about my issues. Uh, about your issues? Yeah, trying to think. I think those go a lot deeper than just. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's more than just physical. <laughs> Thanks. Mind you, I, I gather alcohol is a good substitute if you can't get blood, blood thinner. thinner. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, don't look at the liver, though. Uh, right. well, so, Non-medical advice. Drink yeah, I have, Mike has already gotten there in YouTube, but the, where I was going with all that, oh. you know, you were asking about uh, zero gravity effects. So if you don't have gravity causing clots to form in places where they normally would form um, when you're subjected to gravity, I guess they could, I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't form in other places, even with the effects of gravity, but maybe more likely to form um, in places you wouldn't expect um, when you're in those conditions. So I don't know. I don't know what type of, um, I, I'm sure, I don't know that they were doing any type of surveillance for these types of conditions prior to this. Maybe they do. I'm not sure. Very interesting. Thanks, Micah, for uh, sending that in. Mm -hmm. He's also in our chat room and uh, always a, a great participant in the community. Yeah, somebody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let, the, let the person that let Micah in, would you please uh, contact us after the show? I'll call you right now. We got we got a phone number for you to you ready to copy phone number. <laughs> yeah, you're ready to copy. <laughs> All right, uh, item eight. This was via our Facebook uh, page, Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, Gerald Ludwig says the acronym CAVU, as I learned it decades ago, means Ceiling and Visibility Unlimited. However. Now I hear it explained as clear and visibility unlimited. I think it's ceiling though, but I don't know. Um, I'm on episode 141, savoring every moment. 
don't try to get me to jump to the current episodes. Well, how did he know we were talking about Cavu? Maybe we were talking about it back then. You you probably talked about it. Oh, interesting. I'm wondering if I was any on. higher in, at, at the 50% accuracy level than I am. No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 141 was before um, we started doing co-hosts. It was after yes. Dana, though. It was after me. Yeah, well, but, I, that one was always kind of like a one-off. Uh, it was. <laughs> I try to forget. Yeah, that, that, was one. No, that was a one-off. I was nobody important. No, no, that's uh, what I mean. I mean, it was like I never intended to do it as a regular thing. It was just like a one-off. Hey, you'd be great to be on. Uh, it'd be great to have you on the show today because I'd never heard of anybody with the the, the journey that you had uh, to get to the uh, airlines, and I thought that the audience would really be interested in that, and they were. Well, but, look what happened now. Yeah. Now you get the, one of the best shows on 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 the planet. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, I would. Um, uh, to get our accuracy up to above fifty yep. percent uh, per Wikipedia. Yeah, Cavu ceiling and visibility unlimited, an aviation meteorological term. That's what I thought it was. Yes, ceiling. Okay, but clear works too. Clear and visibility unlimited. All right, uh, let's go with this one. Landon out in Northern California. Hey, Landon. Uh, send us some audio feedback. He has a question about the 737 MAX. Okay, so this is Landon it's from uh, San Jose, California, the left coast. Um, hello, APGers. Hello, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, uh, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, and see who else am I missing? Oh, yeah, Miami Rick, wherever you are, man. Stay up. Hey, uh, so want to uh, give a special thanks to Captain Jeff because uh, I know that I forgot all about him. Um, allegedly, <laughs> forgot all about him in my last uh, feedback. Allegedly, I, wrote, um, I don't know, a few episodes ago, something other. Um, so, wanted to say, hey, thank you for everything that you do, and thank you for actually creating the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Um, you know, we wouldn't have this uh, have this community without you. Um, you need a special uh, you need a special tribute to you, sir. All right. Um, with that being said, I have another question. Uh, it might be for, well, it could be for the whole crew. Um, more particularly, um, probably with uh, good-looking Jeff, uh, since he flies the 737 MAX. Oh, my God, yes, it's another 737 MAX. Uh, question slash problem rant. Um, the MCAS. Does the airplane need the MCAS? Why are we delaying putting this aircraft back into service? I, I I don't understand it. Uh, the airplane is, I mean, the 737, you know, has gone through um, extensions in its fuselage and changes in placement of its wings from the 737-100, uh, excuse me, not changing wings, uh, changing where the engines are mounted uh, on the wings, uh, where you have the cigar engines, uh, old JTH that went from the front of the wing all the way to the back of the wing. And then you had the 737-300-400-500, where the engines were um, pushed out in front of the wings, um, and then uh, smashed down so it's nice and flat, so since the airplane sits so low to the ground. um, Why was no MCAS needed there? Uh, Why can't can't the airplane be flown by a well-trained pilot that knows how to use trim? Why do you have to have a separate uh, system? Uh, to help control the airplane. I say, get rid of it. All right, I'm running out of time. Uh, thank you, Blue Skies Tailwinds, and I uh, hope everybody has a Cavu day. All right, bye. 
Well, the not so good looking Jeff can say something until we hear from the good looking Captain Jeff. Um, but uh, the exact issue that you were mentioning, the fact that they that they uh, changed the geometry of the way the engines were mounted on the wing and the fact that they were much more powerful engines that they've ever put on a 737 uh, created a situation where if you weren't a competent pilot and didn't understand the, the changes in the flight geometry of the airplane, uh, you could get yourself in trouble. But um, I think that if they had released it as a, as, as a new version and had required people go through specific training uh, and to understand the new aerodynamics and the new performance characteristics and everything else, they probably wouldn't have net needed the MCAS. But because they tried to sell this thing as something that they, the airlines would not have to spend any more money and time retraining pilots to fly, uh, they decided, well, we'll just put a, a little gadget in there that will take care of it and we don't have to say anything about it. And I think that was their mistake. Uh, of course, in hindsight, I'm sure they're thinking we should have just made this just a different variant requiring um, some extra training for people to fly it so that they understand the characteristics. And uh, that's my that's my opinion, by the way. Um, what do you all think? Money. Yeah. Well, it's all about saving money, and that's it. I mean, it, you know, when it comes down to it, the training, uh, because the aircraft would fly just like the every other variant, and you know, you, they can make uh, small adjustments, Landon, as far as uh, CG goes. But you know, they did move these engines significantly forward and up off the uh, off the fuselage. So there's there is some uh, aerodynamical aerodynamic issues there as well. Um, but it's you know it comes down to that it's a common type rating. They want to keep it the same type rating, and companies are not interested in spending more money unless they have to. And it was very critical because they were head to head competing with the Airbus, Airbus. three hundred series or three twenty series, uh, who, who are offering Neo. the new Neo. And so to come up with the same kind of performance enhancements that the Neo had, uh, and the Airbus did not require any extra special training for that because it didn't change the performance characteristics significantly enough to require that. And uh, so I think that, uh, yeah, they, they didn't want to, they wanted to sell it as, so it does sort of come down to money, but they wanted to sell it as something that would be easy as, as easy as the Neo, uh, the, the A320 Neo to put in their fleets uh, with no extra training required as you know so that's that's what they did didn't say that very well but you understand what i'm trying to say no i'm not an expert on this but uh i did read and uh that it had a lot to do with the stall characteristics with rcg and power on in that uh the aircraft is supposed to behave in a certain manner uh, as it approaches a stall and one thing it's not allowed to do is to continue to pitch up into a stall. Uh, and I understand MCAS was introduced to uh, oppose the natural tendency the aircraft had in this new design to do that. So uh, it was supposed to oppose that. And as such, then it would be allowed to be recertified without any problems. So that's my understanding of the basic reason that MCAS was but, but couldn't a pilot um, do the same thing that MCAS does by just pushing the fast trim? Well, forward? I think it, I think it is a uh, an aircraft that pitches up into a stall is is 
naturally goes against what you would like to do. You want an right. aircraft to pitch down as it approaches the stall, and I think it's a generally accepted uh, requirement for the passing an aircraft's registration for it to be certified as safe to well, operate. That could be, yeah, I didn't know that that, that it, was the aspect. That it, that it obeys that natural sort of aerodynamic okay. principle. So I, I don't know if uh, – uh, I'm pretty certain that's the case, but uh, okay. I, I'm sure Captain Jeff, uh, the, the nice-looking one, will Thanks. reassure us on that. You know, we're uh, we're coming up to um, our new contract negotiations for the co-host, so just watch it, all right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're nicer-looking. He's just nice-looking. That's what oh, I well, thank meant. You. Okay, now. Uh, yeah, well, see, and I mentioned, yeah. I mentioned money, so I think we need to. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> HR will be in touch. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I look forward to my bonus. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'll bet you are. Okay. It's a percentage of your current pay. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's a one hundred percent bonus of the current pay. Let's say we go. let's say we do this last one that uh uh Liz added to the sh- uh the uh current show and you may or may not have in your Google show notes, but uh, this uh, is... I had to pull it up in my email because okay. it, it wouldn't link. Yeah, from, this is from Mikey. And he says, Hi, excellent show as always. It makes the slog on the motorway much more enjoyable. Feedback for episode 406, which was our last episode. Like a lot of the letter designators in METARS, the origin of FU lies in the... <laughs> <laughs> you like that? Pardon? Uh, <laughs> FU lies yeah, in the French word. Too. Uh, fume for smoke or br for mist being from the french bouillard 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 i should let um stuff read the rest of this go ahead stuff oh other examples are gr for from i don't know that i can pronounce these any better than uh, you can actually come on from uh grella grella for hail or bc from bonk for patches um patches and in terms of, uh, so P2000N, P2000N, that is the RVR value. So P indicates the RVR is higher than the maximum value that can be measured, 2000 meters in this case. The last letter is the trend. N is no change. You would be increasing and D decreasing. In separate matters discussed in 406, in the Atlas incident, the force of the captain pulling back and the first officer pushing forward broke the shear rivets at the PCU. This means that the yokes were no longer linked and would would have created an elevator split. While not directly answering the question in regards to communication, while task saturated, the captain may not have been aware that 50% of the elevator was still pointing very much nose down. Thanks, Mikey. Yeah, that would complicate, uh, aggravate the situation, wouldn't it? Mm. Not good. Wow. Um, you know after I thought about it, uh, after our discussion on the last episode regarding FU uh, as smoke, I, I thought, duh, Mondavi uh, Winery, uh, instead of calling their Sauvignon Blanc, Sauvignon Blanc, they call it Fume Blanc. And that means, uh, the for those of you familiar with the, that wine, it has a smoky kind of flavor to it. It's a uh, very nice wine. And uh, I, I know they're not the only ones that call their Sauvignon Blanc Fume Blanc. But now it all makes sense. And the uh, I thought that that P2000N, P- P2000D was 
had something to do with visibility. I just couldn't work it out. But I guess the P must stand for plus and then uh, the RVR and then whether it's decreasing, increasing or no change. P indicates that you can't get a reading above that. Mm -hmm. So that's the maximum reading. That's the highest. Okay. Well, I just always see when I see P and and somewhere, I always think, you know, plus. Yeah, that's that's why, you know, the only reason we do it this way is because of the limitations on the sort of transmissions that machines could produce like 3,000 years ago. Um, So this is a really ancient form of abbreviation. And personally, I uh, would like to see it um, simplified. Is that a slight exaggeration? (laughs) 3,000 years ago. Possibly. Hmm. Well, it's the it was the ancient Greeks, or was it the? Um, it Egyptians? was back when Nick learned the to Egyptian. fly. <laughs> hieroglyphs. The, it, that's where they got it from. The Egyptian hieroglyphs. Ouch. Pretty Ouch. sure. Yeah, that's my flight manuals were in hieroglyphics. <laughs> hieroglyphics <laughs> or something. <laughs> yes, that, whatever that word is. I've always had trouble pronouncing that word. Let <laughs> <laughs> huh? so, snorting. Nice one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, stop the snorting. All right. <laughs> Is that the other name for our show? <laughs> yes. All right. I think that's uh, well, well past time for us to stop the show. Uh, so uh, thank you everybody for, uh, for joining us today on this episode, especially those of you who are there with us live in the uh, live chat room. And uh, let's see if you want to learn more and I'm not sure why would you, why you'd want to, but we do have a nice website. Arash is our website guru, um, manages and created that. And we have a lot of good stuff on there. Um, I'm not going to go through all this stuff. You just have to check it out yourself. And uh, we're also on the social meds. We are on the social meds. You can head over to twitter.com and find us using the handle at APG crew. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And we love, we look forward to seeing you on the social medias. Yes. And we also have a social media called Slack. And uh, I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> well, so long as Halal is, that's fine. Yeah. Well, Sorry, you know, I thought you had more to talk about, too. I was like, oh, yeah, social media. I should talk about that. <laughs> so um, so I was, while I was talking about that, I was thinking, I need to do set up the Halal stuff. The thing. I haven't done that yet. Have you locked Halal in the toilet. Again? Yeah, well, you know, Halal is, uh, he's in um, not with me here today, but uh, he's somewhere in a hotel room in Albany, New York. And uh, let's see if we can get, uh, oh, there there he is again. Hillel. <laughs> you need to you need to stop the shower thing when we're when we're doing the show, okay? I need a towel. I got shampoo in my eyes. Okay. Well, come on over here and tell us about Slack. Oh no. <laughs> no. Tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, uh, Hillel. Now you can go back to whatever the heck you were 
you were doing over I there. I wouldn't go in there for a while, Captain. Okay, thanks for the warning. And until next time. Oh, before we do that, let's a uh, big round of applause for our producer in Toronto, oh, Liz Piper. Liz. Thank you, Liz. Great job. And uh, until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Bye, buddy. Happy New Year, everybody. Good day. Just fine.